This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Jocko Willink. Jocko is, of course, the host of the Jocko Podcast. Jocko Underground, author of Extreme Ownership, The Dichotomy of Leadership, The Way of the Warrior Kid series, Mikey and the Dragons, Leadership, Strategy and Tactics, and the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. If you don't have all of these, I suggest you get them today. It's also the author of the new book, Final Spin. It's his first foray into fiction. I was fortunate enough to get an early copy. It is absolutely fantastic. We discuss it on the podcast. It is out November 9th. Be sure to pick that up. And we also talk about Jocko's entire time in the military and what he's doing today, which is a lot. Because in addition to the books and the podcast, he also has Origin. He has Jocko Go. He has Echelon Front. So be sure to check them out, echelonfront.com. They do the muster, which he is doing right now as I record this. And just a fantastic guy. So uh, he was also the OIC, the officer in charge of the training department that put me through two of my workups, one as an officer in charge as a platoon commander and the other as a troop commander. So I was very fortunate to go through my urban warfare training with Jocko in charge of training and my desert warfare training, my land warfare training with him in charge as well. After he had recently returned from leading task unit bruiser in the battle of Ramadi. So he was fresh off the battlefield and we talk about that on the podcast as well. So I feel very fortunate that I got to go through that training with him as the OIC and I'm just so fired up for everything that he has going on today. So go to jockopodcast.com to link to everything he has going on. And now without further ado, Jocko Willink. Yeah, man, look at this. Bam. Yeah. Final spin. Look at that. I read it. The first edition, as you like to say, is on the way. So that shows up on publication day because uh, I always buy books from uh, from people that, uh, that that send them. And it's also super cool to get the advanced readers edition and then have that first edition as well. So um, this is awesome. And I want to talk about this uh, not in too much detail because I don't want it to ruin it. And I think people should not listen to your podcast that you did uh, on it, uh, where you talk about it or read the publisher's weekly review, which is a great review until after they read this, mm -hmm. because there are, there are two things that that publisher weekly review gives up. Yeah. Two things yeah. that as I read it, and I'm so glad that I read it without reading that review and without listening to you guys talk about it on the podcast first, because it's uh, those two things yeah. were pretty important and pretty important to be semi-surprised about as you're going through this thing. Yeah, I was a little surprised that Publishers Weekly gave out um, at least one of those details. I was a little surprised about that, but I was also surprised that they gave me such an awesome review. So <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, I know. Take it for sure. It's awesome. Um, and for me, as I was reading it, so, uh, and I don't say this lightly, and usually I don't compare books to other authors, but having read a lot and having read this and having been really excited to read this because it's your first foray into the fictional realm here, uh, Cormac McCarthy with a dash of Quentin Tarantino <laughs> is that's what I, that's what I took as I was, that's I read it and I read it totally blind, didn't know anything about it, opened it, read it, loved it, and that 
that was what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on which Cormac McCarthy, because if it's Cormac McCarthy, if you're, if you're thinking of either the road or no country for old men, that's a pretty good fit. If it's, if it's blood Meridian, then it's just totally off, you know, because blood Meridian is such a dense book and this book is not written in that manner, but but no, exactly. That's yeah, no, that is a compliment. And uh, yeah, so a more readable Cormac McCarthy. That's for sure. Blood Meridian is tough. Like you got to dedicate, you got to go all in on that. Yeah. You can't just kind of pick it up and breeze through it. You got to devote time, energy, and effort to that one. But uh, but before I get to to this and before we go into this, um, I want to, I never, I don't think I ever asked you, I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast before, and I'm sure anybody listening to this listens to your podcast. Um, but where, was, where were you with the first time you heard about the SEAL teams and what a SEAL was? Um. You know, my, my, my original, my original look into, I guess, maritime commando operations was when I was a little kid, I had all these little airfix toy soldiers, the one thirty second ones that are about this tall. I had different soldiers from all over the world, from different wars. And my favorite ones were the British commandos, which were these guys that had little Zodiac boats and they all had little beanies on and Sten guns and, and kayaks. And I thought that that was the coolest of the all the different soldiers I had. I thought they were the coolest. And eventually, at some point, I made the connection between the 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 American maritime commandos was the closest thing was the SEAL teams. And that's kind of I don't know when I made that connection, but I had a friend that went to boot camp in between our junior and senior years, went to Army boot camp, used to be able to do that Army reserves. You could go to boot camp between your junior and senior year. He went and apparently when he was down there. He came back and told this story that um, he was out on the track and with his with his training group, whatever that was. And there was a guy with a T-shirt on, camo pants, boots, a rucksack, long hair and a beard, like hair and a ponytail. And my friend says, drill sergeant, who's that guy? And the drill sergeant just looking off in the distance at the guy just goes Delta. And then my friend goes. Hey, drill sergeant, is there anyone that's tougher than Delta? And the drill sergeant, without looking at him, just keeps looking ahead and says, SEAL team. And when I heard that story, I was hook, line, and sinker done. And obviously, we know that's not true. There's incredible <laughs> people in every special operations group. But whatever that, whatever that drill sergeant had heard, whatever rumors he'd heard, whatever myth he'd heard, it was good enough that when it got passed on to me, I was hook, line, and sinker going to the teams. <laughs> Oh yeah, dude. Rumor, rumors, intelligence. That that was very powerful, especially back then, before you could check out anything online. Yeah, and uh, you know, similar with me going down to the library and researching SEAL teams back in the early '80s with hardly anything written. Well, I read that hey, it's the toughest training ever devised by a modern military, and these guys are some of the best special operators in the world. And I was like, boom, age seven. You know, I'm in. <laughs> like that's all I needed to hear. One sentence or two sentences in a book or a magazine article back then. So very powerful. You know, when you get these influences, because I could have gone to research something else and have a whole different path in life. So it's so important, which is why these books are so great. Uh, the, the kids books that you write, they're so important because there are so few books for kids that give that, uh, I don't know, aren't trying to, aren't trying to manipulate them. Maybe don't have some other, other intent behind them. And these are so great. Love them. You signed them for my kids. I sincerely appreciate it. And as I ran up to their room before this to get them, you're right there next to Captain Underpants. <laughs> and in this house, that's like being on the top of the New York Times list. You'd be next to Captain Underpants up there. So that's a that's a big big deal. Right on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, 
when you get to the SEAL teams, you still have guys from Vietnam that are there. So you get there in 1990. Is that, is that right? 1990. I went, yeah, 19, I joined the Navy in 1990. I got to SEAL team one in 1991. Yep. So you're still having some of these, these Vietnam guys in there. 100%. Um, so what, what do you remember? What are some of the things that you learned from them that you carried forward? And then on your podcast, when you're talking to a lot of these Vietnam vets, is there anything that you have learned as you've been talking to these guys where you're like, ah, that's where that came from. Uh, well, some things that guys have taught, taught you in the early nineties. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a guy named Roger Hayden. He's been on my podcast a couple of times. He was a very legendary seal, even though he never would say anything like that. But, uh, I was at a, I was at a old seal reunion back in the early nineties. I think I was actually a new guy. So this was probably 1992, maybe the summer of 1992, they, they had seal UDT seal reunions, but it was, there'd be 50 people there and they were just all from Nam. and me and my running mate team guy, we would go down to these things and hang out and talk to people. But I remember I was sitting there talking to a couple old Vietnam guys. And I said, who is the most badass murdering seal in Nam?" And these guys both were like, Oh, Roger Hayden. And just without missing a beat, um, so then there's, there's, there's obviously, there's a lot of guys that, that were total badasses in Vietnam, but I always remember that about Roger Hayden, but Roger Hayden was the first guy that taught me cover and move, which is the first principle of combat leadership that I now have wrote about in extreme ownership and the dichotomy leadership and, and leadership strategy and tactics. And I taught it to a lot of people, not just in the teams, not just in the military, but in every aspect of life. And that came from Roger Hayden. You know, he was looking at me, talking to me saying, Hey, when you, when you you can't move unless someone else is shooting. That's cover move. You got to do that every single time and everything you do. And I just thought, Roger that and that. So yes, there's an example of, of, you know, what, what I learned from a Vietnam guy. And what's interesting when, when Roger came on my podcast, he was talking about how when they got back from Vietnam and he went out to our desert training site and they set up the the point man's course, which is something that we still do to this day. We go out and run the point man's course. You're looking for trip wires. You're looking for targets to shoot. You're trying to sneak through, be quiet. And that's something that they brought back from Vietnam and instituted in, you know, 1968 or something like that. And it's what you and I did 30, 40, 50 years later, the same exact stuff. So there's, there's a lot of those traditions and, and pieces of information that were passed down through through word of mouth. And what's really interesting is, and I was talking to the uh, Special Operations Association yesterday, I was talking about the fact that when when I got in the SEAL teams, when you got in the SEAL teams, there was almost no doctrine whatsoever. You didn't, you couldn't go to a manual. In the Army and the Marine Corps, they've got doctrine for everything. And, and it's outstanding that they do. And if you don't know, if you're a if you're a first lieutenant and you've never done a, an assault on a building before, you can pull out a book you can pull out, you know, uh, FM seven TAC eight, uh, infantry squad and platoon, and you can look through that book and figure out how to do a raid and what everyone's jobs are and the best methodology. But in the SEAL teams, if you want to know how to do a raid, you got to ask your platoon chief. You got to ask a guy that's, you know, senior to you that's been longer. So everything is word of mouth that it was, you know, we got, we got some stuff in doctrine towards the end, towards the time I retired, towards the time you retired, but every, almost everything that we know is, was passed down word of mouth in like the oral tradition of history inside the SEAL teams. And some of it, unfortunately, got lost. Um, another good example of that is I had Mike Thornton on my podcast and Mike Thornton, Medal of Honor recipient, a le legendary, legendary SEAL. 
and who who performed an incredibly and not just an incredible heroic act, a multitude of heroic acts in one event, in one mission to and where he received the Medal of Honor. And he, even though I was in the SEAL teams for 20 years, and even though I actually had met Mike Thornton and actually knew Mike Thornton decently well, um, when, when Mikey Monsoor received the Medal of Honor posthumously, I met Mike Thornton in, in a more direct way and talked to him and became, you know, kind of friends with him. And yet with all that, I never got a good detailed explanation or detailed review of what actually happened until he came on my podcast and explained for three hours exactly what happened on that whole mission, how it went down. And, and so, yeah, there's, <laughs> you learn something new every day and talking to these Vietnam guys is just an amazing opportunity. No, it's incredible to, that you're capturing all that. And yeah, that oral tradition, passing on those lessons learned, word of mouth, passing it down. There was something that was cool about that in the SEAL teams, uh, something that differentiated us a little bit. But at the same time, uh, there was something, there was a, there's maybe, uh, it's tough because it's, there's maybe a tiny bit of lack of professionalism there and you risk losing a lot based off just telling that secret around a circle as a kid. When it comes back to you, it's, my, it's a little different than when it started. Um, but, but, it, but when it I got to that- us, uh, Yeah, it, it allows us- to maintain a lot of flexibility and adaptability. Yeah. And we, we, we keep very open minds. So when a SEAL platoon gets tasked with a mission, they might not go to the book, but the book might be wrong for that particular mission. So I think it's, it's got, it's got benefits to it, but it's also got some detractors as well. Yep. No, got to be able to, uh, to adapt just like anything, anything in, in life. But, uh, so when you, then that's, what's so important about your podcast, I think, is that you're keeping that old school tradition alive of passing on some of those lessons. And for a lot of these guys, I mean, they might not be around that much longer. I'm about to head out at Pearl Harbor here in, uh, in December to help some of these veterans that might probably a lot of them will be their last time for this 80th commemorative, uh, event out there. And, uh, so I'm just going to help and, and get them around, get them where they need to go, do whatever I need, need to do there. But, uh, I mean, the Vietnam guys are getting up there as well. And it's, it's so important to capture this, not just to pass on these lessons to another generation who needs heroes right now, probably more than at any time in our history, um, because there's so many other distractions out there. Um, but also for their, for their families, because a lot of these guys probably never, the stories that, that they told, tell you on these podcasts, they probably, their daughter, their son is probably hearing it for the first time yep. when they listen to the podcast. It's so, so powerful. Yeah. I had a guy named, uh, Doug, the Frenchman Letourneau on, who is a SOG guy in Vietnam. And he came on the podcast, told his whole story, incredible story. And he died two weeks after, three weeks after I interviewed him, two weeks after the podcast came out. But, you know, his son came to me, his son came to one of my events and, and just was so thankful that we were able to capture his whole story. And those SOG guys, they didn't, they weren't allowed to talk about what they did for, for 20 years. They didn't even start talking about it until the nineties. And so a lot of them had just kind of suppressed it and they just didn't talk about it anymore. So yeah, it's a real honor to be able to talk to those guys and, and capture those stories for sure. Yeah. There's a thing project Delta in, uh, in Vietnam that, uh, Charlie Beckwith was actually the, uh, one of the commanding officers of as a, as a major back then, but those guys didn't talk about that till just a few years ago, like five, six, seven years ago. Yep. Some of the first books about project Delta came out and they did some incredible missions in, in Vietnam. It's, it's incredible. Um, but, uh, so when you first got to the team's did you go to some schools that, uh, that, uh, some of these old Vietnam guys were teaching or what were some of the first schools that stood out to you? Like as a new guy, are they sending you to dive soup and stuff like that? Or are you going, uh, to some, so some schools that made an impression back then? So I had like every other seal, I checked in and thought, oh, I'm just going to be a machine gunner, you know, give me an M60, which is what we used back then. 
And I was standing watch on the quarter deck. We used to have watch on the quarter deck of oh, yes. the team. I remember. <laughs> and and I was standing watch in my the 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 officer of the watch or whatever we called the officer of the watch, the chief duty officer or whatever it was. He was a, a lieutenant. And he said, Hey, if you want to go on every mission, you should be a radio man because no matter what mission happens, the radio man has to go. And I said, Roger that went to bed that night. This is when we used to sleep right there in the quarter deck. They have a couple yep. of racks in the, in the yep. back. And I, I woke up in the morning, got my gear on. I knocked on the, the, the door of the, of the radio room and said, Hey, uh, you know, I'm Jocko. I want to be a radio man. And sure enough, they were like, because no one volunteered to be a radio man back then. Yep. No one. It's a well, bunch I got voluntold. Yeah, yeah, I got voluntold to be a radio man. It's a bunch of extra weight you got to carry. It's not very, uh, not a very sexy job. You're not slinging lead. You're talking on the phone, basically. And but it was it was what I thought would guarantee me a spot on missions. And so that's what I did. And I ended up going to a communication school, comm school, an NSW comm school. I actually went to an East Coast one, which was run by a really squared away chief. And and then um, that was a great introduction for me. I was the primary comm guy in my first platoon and my second platoon and my third platoon, which was really cool to be a new guy and be the be the primary comms guy. So that was that was kind of how I started off. That guy wasn't a Vietnam guy. Uh, so, you know, that mostly, you know, the, probably one of the coolest interactions I had with uh, the Vietnam era SEALs was when I checked into SEAL Team 1, I'm a brand new guy, and I am going around checking into the various departments, and our XO was a prior enlisted Vietnam SEAL, and he's a pretty famous, you know, in, in the SEAL teams SEAL. And he's one of the guys, you know, the picture of the dirty dozen in Nam. they're holding like a, a NVA flag. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of those guys, one of those guys in the dirty so dozen, awesome. just an awesome guy. So I'm in my, whatever, I'm in my uniform and I'm checking into the various departments and it's finally time for me to go check in with the XO. Who's the second to last guy you see before you go see the CO. And so I go to see the XO and I knock on his door and it's this seal, this Vietnam seal. And he's, got his big rack of ribbons on, you know, bronze stars, silver stars, uh, purple hearts. It's, it's like pushing his trident up onto his shoulder and I'm sitting there looking at him and he, you know, of course he's like the oldest looking guy I've ever seen in my life, which was probably like five years younger than I am right, right. now, but he's looking at me and, you know, he looks up and he goes, willing, you know, he's looking at my paper and, and yes, sir. And he asked me, you know, what do you want to do? I didn't, this is before I became a radio man. He just, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, Oh, machine gun or whatever. And then he's checking through my stuff and he looks up at me and he goes, um, I'd give anything to switch places with you right now. And it really struck me because I'm sitting there thinking I'd give anything to switch places with this guy right now. Cause he's this war hero and he's got all these experiences and he's a salty old frogman, And that's what I want to be. And now, you know, what you fast forward at that time, you know, that was 30 something years ago. And now when I go talk to the young SEALs, I tell them that story and I tell them all I would do anything to switch places with them right now, because that's exactly. And I said, someday you're going to be saying the same thing. So take advantage of it. Enjoy it. It's the best job ever. And, and just relish every moment that you're in the teams. Yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's the circle. That's how it goes. And uh, yeah, same thing with me. Comms was a definite was was the way to go, and it helped me so much 
when I became an officer because I was involved in that mission planning process, 100%. even though it morphed after September 11th, but still you get those basics down, forced me to learn some PowerPoint. You're in those rooms as you're, you're talking with your chief and your OIC and all those guys, and you're, you're part of that planning process. And then when you become an officer, the comm guy can't fool you. And they're not babysitting you, like programming your radio and doing all that stuff. And you're not just, you don't look totally helpless. So it was, it was, it was awesome. I love being a, being a, looking back, I love being a comm guy. Although at the time I've, I wanted to be a point man, of course, <laughs> like everybody did, you know, get on that 60 or be a point man, uh, reading Patches Watson book. But, uh, so at some point you decide to go to college, to go to OCS. What was, what, uh, why did you make that decision? Did you have a, a mentor or a couple mentors in the teams that uh, directed you down that path? Or did you have a, a uh, what is oftentimes the case, a uh, not the greatest leadership example and decided, hey, I can do this better uh, than it was done for me? Or how did that come? What was that path for you? Yeah. So I, this is a story I told in Leadership Strategy and Tactics because it really was a, a fundamental moment in my life that changed the way I thought. Yeah. I, I had a platoon commander who was not good who was arrogant, who had a big ego, who was clearly insecure about the amount of experience that he had. And he didn't listen to anybody else in the platoon, didn't listen to the platoon chief, didn't listen to anybody, didn't listen to the LPO. The LPO had experience, combat experience, which was rare at the time. The, the platoon chief was a really brilliant guy. The, the LPO, like I said, was squared away. There was a bunch of good E5s and there was just a, a bunch of good people. And this platoon commander didn't listen to anybody. Well, it caused a lot of friction the friction eventually escalated to the point where the platoon commander took a swing at the LPO as they were arguing about how to do a certain training mission. So we all jump in, break it up, but this turned the frustration. It kind of, it kind of gelled the frustration that we had in the platoon. We had a mutiny and we went to our, our, our uh, SEAL team CO and told him, Hey, we don't want to work for this guy. And of course, the SEAL team CEO is like, this sounds like a mutiny. We don't have mutinies in the Navy. Get the hell out of here. But then he was also a very good commanding officer. And so he started pulling the thread on what was going on in this platoon and with this particular officer. And he fired the guy two or three days later. And then we got another platoon commander who was another legendary SEAL. Everybody knew who he was. I'd never met him before, but everybody knew his name. He'd been at every different SEAL team there was. He was a prior enlisted guy. He was a prior enlisted senior chief before he wow. became an ensign and then a, you know, and then a JG and then a lieutenant. And now he was coming to be our platoon commander. And I kind of thought, well, they're sending this guy in here to, uh, you know, to put these mutineers in, in <laughs> check. And it turned out that the first time he came into the platoon hut, you know, he said, Hey, it's really good to meet you guys. I'm looking forward to work with you all. And this guy was, Again, one of the oldest people I'd ever seen in my life. So he was probably in his mid thirties. Exactly. Uh, he was probably, he had gray hair. I remember that and thinking, geez, this guy's like a grandpa. He was also, you know, five foot, I don't know, maybe five foot six, five foot seven, maybe 150 pounds. So we were all, you know, these jacked uh, young guys. And I'm thinking, how's this, this legendary guy? Well, it turned out legendary because he's just an incredible leader. And he was, was super humble, listened just, just made life good for us guys in the platoon. And when I got done with that platoon, I said to myself, if I can one day in my life, I'm going to make, I'm going to make life good for 16 guys in a SEAL platoon. And that's what kind of put me on the path of trying to become an officer. So I could be in charge of a SEAL platoon and make life good for 16 guys in a platoon. And that's what I ended up doing. And uh, very thankful to have that leader that, that, uh, that showed me how to lead. 
Yeah. No, it's uh, it's interesting you say it. These guys in their mid thirties, early thirties are so old. I mean, I thought the, the same thing when I go back and, and think about it. Uh, and then you read like uh, black sheep squadron by Pappy Boynton. He was 28 or something like that. Uh, leading the black sheep squadron as a, as a major in world war two. And they call him Pappy. Yeah. Like he's so old at age 28. Um, but maybe back then, I mean, yeah, some of those pictures, he does look pretty old in some of those pictures. Cause, uh, there, there was some serious business going on yeah. back there. Uh, so you, you, you're doing Og Bravos. You're trying to get on these, all these deployments, trying to be ready, yeah. um, for the call when it comes. Um, but where were you on, uh, on nine 11? Did you, uh, were you in college or what was yep. that afterward? Or? So I had, um, I had gone, I, I did this program called the Seaman, the old Seaman Admiral program, which they stopped and they had to stop it because it was the most ridiculous good deal oh, that had ever been so great for anybody. Yeah, I, I missed that good deal, but it's yeah. an awesome deal. Yeah. So I was an E5 at SEAL Team 1 with no college. I went to officer candidate school for 13 weeks and they sent me to SEAL Team 2 as an ensign. It was just awesome. And then when I, I did a couple of deployments at Team 2, got done with that. And then I had to go to college because I hadn't been to college yet. And, and so I started college in the year 2000. And so September 11th happened, 2001. I was in college. I immediately called the detailer who I had worked for when I was at SEAL Team 2. And I said, hey, sir, please get me out of here. I'll go to college later. I'll do online schooling, whatever you need to do, but get me back to a SEAL team. And he, with a, a great bit of wisdom, said to me, you know, Jocko, don't worry, this war is going to last a long, long time. And of course, I didn't believe him, but he was 100% right. And the other interesting thing, I was talking with him the other day, and he ended up becoming an admiral, and he's just a great guy. But when I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to call, and I'm going to try and get back to a SEAL team. Well, the, what what else was going on? Every single SEAL that wasn't as a SEAL team was calling back and saying, hey, get me to a SEAL team. Please get me to a SEAL team. So that's the guys in the community. There was a war about to happen and everyone had wanted to go and 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 go do what we are supposed to do. So that's the that's the great community that we come from. But uh, so I was in college when September 11th happened. I finished college. And then again, luckily, I knew the detailer. And he, I mean, he sent me to SEAL Team 7, which was getting ready to deploy to Iraq, or at least they were sending a platoon to Iraq in three months or four months. And so I showed up at that SEAL team, this commanding officer of that SEAL team I had worked for before, and he almost immediately fired one of the platoon commanders, gave me that platoon, and then sent me to Iraq. So <laughs> I, I, I'm the luckiest, uh, luckiest guy ever. <laughs> yeah, no, we all thought, everybody thought they were going to miss it. September 11th, like you weren't deployed. You were like, oh man, they thought you were going to miss it. And obviously that was not the the case, but, um, so it was very wise of whoever that, that the detailer was at that time to take a breath and kind of look long-term or to recognize that. Cause not many people did. I certainly did. And I was like, I was, man, I was felt so lucky that we were deployed and then that we were on planes to the middle East and we thought we were going to Afghanistan. We ended up doing the team three shipboardings when those guys uh, ended up going into Afghanistan, but, um, still you were, we were closer and we were doing something that, uh, that felt real. And even us doing the shipboardings, we were a little bit upset. Like, oh man, those guys went to Afghanistan. We, we kind of missed it because the shipboardings were going on before September 11th. You're enforcing that UN embargo and they were really kind of high speed before September 11th. Mm. On September 11th, they became not so high speed anymore. Um, but looking back, it was some of the most interesting, not most interesting, but it was, it was an interesting thing to have done uh, for a time um, because I look at it like pulling up a police officer, pulling a car over. You don't really know what you're walking up on. So same thing, crawling up the sides of those ships in the middle of the night as they're speeding towards Iran in rough seas. Like you don't really know what you're 
what you're getting into. So it ended up being kind of cool. But uh, so you've done team one, you've done college, you've done OCS, you're a team seven, uh, you've done team two before, before that. And then team three comes around uh, right after that team seven deployment. Yeah. So I, I had an awesome deployment with SEAL team seven. Like I said, I was very lucky. I got put into a platoon and we went to Baghdad. And when I first got to Baghdad, we were the only, only SEAL platoon in the country, which was crazy, right? It was awesome. And we were just doing all kinds of missions, you know, probably every night, every other night, just, just, it was just, it was as good as I could have asked for. It was also a nice, relatively gentle introduction into combat operations. So, you know, I think back to the guys that their first combat operation was D-Day. That's, that's a crazy thought. I had a very nice, uh, relatively nice, easy slope going into combat operations of doing these direct action missions that we had a lot of control over. And so, and it was a great deployment. We had a did a bunch of a bunch of cool stuff. Got back from that. Actually, after that, I went and became the admiral's aide for 13 okay. months. That was my commanding officer. <laughs> my commanding officer told me that his last mission as the SEAL commanding officer of SEAL Team 7, the last thing he was going to do is make sure that I become the admiral's aide. And and I could see why he did it. Um, you know, the admiral, the admiral at the time, he's a great guy. Um, and he actually ended up, he just was on my pod, podcast yeah. not too long ago. But just a just a great guy, but also, you know, removed from being in a platoon, hadn't been to Iraq. So what they want is they want to have a guy that is fresh off the battlefield that can talk to the admiral and and help him understand what's going on and answer questions for him. And that was that was me. And so that's exactly what I ended up doing. And it was it was an honor to be able to do it and working for for that Admiral, Admiral McGuire, Joe McGuire. He's a great guy, a a guy that loved the SEAL teams, a guy that would ask in every meeting that he had when people were talking about all these grand plans and where we're going to spend our money. He would almost always bring that meeting back to how does this help our SEAL platoons? because that's what we are. It's very easy, just like in any corporate structure, you get into a big bureaucratic structure, people forget about why, why we exist. And the reason the SEAL teams exist is for the SEAL platoon to go out there and capture, kill bad guys. So he was a great guy. I got to learn a lot from him. And then after that, I went to SEAL Team 3, where I was a task unit commander. And uh, Admiral McGuire, he's yeah hilarious. Also, by the yes. way, if you listen to that podcast with you, he's he's so funny. I've been had a had, I've been fortunate enough to spend a little time around him. We were hunting together not not too long ago. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, great guy, and uh, it's awesome that he came on the podcast. Hear you guys reminisce about about those times. Um, but yeah, then team team three, and I want to ask you a little bit about uh, uh, team three. But I'm going to come come back to that um, and talk about extreme ownership here in a second. But uh, after, I'm going to jump ahead real quick to trade at OIC, where I get to go through your training, not once, but twice. And you are fresh off the battlefield from Ramadi. And uh, we were doing a lot of down man carries out there in the desert in Nyland. Um, so my my memories of that time, I mean, I, I, I you taught me a lot and I passed them on to everyone that I've worked with since. Uh, a lot of them I still think about today, particularly prioritize and execute um, in my regular everyday life when there's so many things going on now, taking a breath, looking around, making a call. And it was clear to me back then that you had uh, you had this gift for passing on 
this knowledge, not just knowledge, but this wisdom, because you're passing along not just successes, but failures to make the next generation uh, better going forward. Um, and we miss that a lot uh, strategically and, and tactically. But I learned a, a ton during that training, but man, that was, yeah, that was pretty serious. That was a lot of down mandrills. So uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I would say I was a little bit, I mean, I, I was, I was very, I was, I was still very emotional, you know, about the war and, and actually, you know, Admiral McGuire, when I came back, he, he just said, you know, it was a very, it's a tough deployment. Um, and there was a lot of things happened on that deployment. And he said, Hey, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And I, there was no doubt in my mind what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to trade at, I wanted to make sure that the lessons that I learned that, that. I was able to pass them on to the, to the guys that were about to go to this exact same place and do the exact same thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, like I said, I was very, I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what the, quite the word is. It's a little bit, I was a little bit crazy. You know, I remember like, for instance, during, during urban warfare training, I would be watching a platoon and I'd see a guy standing out in the street in the open and I would feel sick to my stomach because I was waiting for him to get shot because that was the feeling I had for a long time. And so that just translated into, you know, like, Oh, I was just very serious about it and really wanted to make sure that guys knew what they were getting into. And, and the down man thing, you know, that was, I, I know I was a, a little bit brutal about that. And, you know, for people that don't know what we're talking about, if you were out on a, on a land warfare operation and I, when I was running that training, you might have, three, four, five, seven down men that you have to now carry out, you know, seven or eight clicks across the desert. It's a complete and utter gut check. And like, that's what we did. And, and, you know, part of that was um, like, Hey, it's a physical thing, but it's also a mental thing of, Hey, hey you, you know, we found out like carrying down guys is a hell of a lot harder then, oh, I'm going to grab the guy, you know, oh, Jack's down. So I walk over and you kind of stand up. And so then you could just kind of jump on my shoulder and, and I just kind of run a little bit. It's not like that, like dead weight. It's a freaking nightmare. And yeah, um, tried to get those lessons across. And, and that was my, that was my mission at that time. Yeah, no, you did it in a way that uh, had never been done before. And there, there's some things that I had, even though these things weren't written down, just from studying warfare from a very early age, reading all these books, trying to take the lessons out of these books, especially, specifically from the Vietnam guys back in the 80s and, and 90s, reading reading these things, continuing to read everything I possibly could about warfare. Some of those, those cover and moves, keeping it simple, uh, that decentralized command. Um, but so I so I kind of had that just from from study and then from being in Iraq, from being in Afghanistan. But once again, all verbal, all just observing, just uh, on the job type type training. Um, but the prioritize and execute that's that's the one that I really really hit home um, from you because as a platoon commander out there and you're throwing these down men all over the place and you have a, another contact over here and then you're like, hey, there's a helo that just was coming to rescue. It just crashed over here and you're like, uh, as a as a platoon commander. But then it's like you just think about these rules, these uh, these laws of combat that you passed on, and I printed them out and I passed them out to all my guys. Same thing with the dichotomy of leadership. I still I still have it. I printed it out right here, and uh, I'd give that to my guys. Same thing with that true believer quote that was in my second novel. I gave that to them as as well. But uh, but being able to take that breath, look around, make that call. Okay, adapt from there. But then if there's multiple things going on, 
prioritize and execute. I mean, you when you pass that along to me as a platoon commander, uh, that made the job when I stepped into that troop commander role uh, so much, not easier, but it's just, uh, it, it makes it, uh, it gives you some something to fall, not fall, even fall back on, but just because you, it does makes, make it, it makes it logical. It yeah, I guess it does make it, it easier because you're, easier. you're not like running around like a crazy person, not knowing what to do. You're like, oh, I know what to do here. I take a breath, make a call. Oh, a few things are going on. Okay, let's prioritize this. Boom, boom, boom. And then I get to pass those along to the next people. If, if they ever, there's a trade at OIC who's not doing that, well, guess what? I can talk to my chief. I can talk to my, my uh, junior officers. I can talk to the platoon, talk to the troop and talk about these things and pass on what I learned from you to them. And then, like I said, I still use all that stuff today. But you, you also found a book along the way, and this is my copy of it from high school. So right here. So this is, a, this is, a, this is a first edition. It's not signed. And I know you have a, I think you have like a signed galley copy, an advanced reader's edition of this, that, which is incredible to me. So, uh, in high school, like I, I was reading everything, even in junior high, everything about warfare, of course, this has a helmet on it, you know? So I'm like, okay, I need to read this. And, uh, and I did. And, uh, and you found it at some point along the way too. And then eventually you get to write the foreword to, to a new edition which is, I mean, what an honor. I mean, incredible. And then those laws of combat, you say, you know, they're, they're, they're rooted in what you learned from Hackworth in About Face. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about how you found uh, this book to begin with and then how you took these lessons and then applied them to, to what you did in Ramadi and what you're doing today? Yeah. Um, I, I, again, the, the guys in the SEAL teams, you know, Guys like the my my second platoon commander, um, those those Vietnam guys, they definitely passed on a lot of information to me. But I, I always have to kind of admit that my biggest mentor was David Hackworth, even though I never met him before. And and that book right there about face, it's not a book about leadership. It's not. It it, it never even refers. I mean, maybe it does a little bit, but it doesn't talk about leadership as this sort of reflective thing. He's just actually explaining what his leader's doing or what he's doing or what he saw. And if you read it through a leadership lens, it's an absolutely incredible book to teach you about leadership. And that's what I ended up doing. And, and I don't actually remember when I got, I don't remember when I read it for the first time, because now it's just so embedded in my brain that I don't remember when I, I read it for the first time. I still have my first, my first copy is a paperback copy. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how I got it. Now I have, I, I think I have about 15 or 20 copies, about five of them are signed. And yes, I have an advanced reader's copy signed. And it's That's wild. It's, it's, I, a guy came to one of my events and he walked up to me and he goes, Hey, I have this for you. And I looked at it and, and I was taken aback because I recognized what it was, but I also didn't recognize it because I'd seen most of the different versions before. And it's thinner. Like it's, they must've added another two or 300 pages after the advanced reader copy came out. So it's a much thinner version. Uh, and, and I, and I take it out of the plastic and I look at it and it's signed. And I just, I just, I said, do you have any idea what this is worth? And he says, well, I, I got it for 30 bucks in Canada at a bookstore. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, are you sure you want to give it to me? And he said, absolutely. So it's in my, it's, well, I'm not going to say exactly where it is, but it is in a very, very, very safe place. Uh, but yeah, reading that book, as I read through that book and, and the book, what, what's interesting about the book is he's a rebel, right? He's a rebellious person. Now he's a rebellious person that's totally on board with the 
with the army and he loves the army and he loves his soldiers and he does everything to the best of his ability. But he also questions authority. He doesn't blindly follow. And the, the, na- the name of the book is about face because at the end of the Vietnam War, he went on to he went on, on a, an interview and said that if we don't change the way we're fighting this war, we're going to lose. And he was the first senior officer to make that statement. And they drummed him out of the army. And that was that. And I was a little worried. Um, you know, people write books and maybe they try and make themselves look a certain way. And I had an opportunity to have a guy named General James Mukayama, who was one of his company commanders in Vietnam. And I got to meet him and have him on my podcast. And as I was going to meet with him, I thought to myself, you know, what if this guy's like, uh, you know, Hackworth wasn't all that. He's kind of a blowhard. He was an egomaniac, whatever. What if he says that? And then it's kind of, you know, that would kind of crush my, the, the image I had in my mind. And so when I met General Mukayama, who is just an incredible human being, awesome guy, but he was explaining when he first met Hackworth. And he was a young captain and he was working as the adjutant for the general when Hackworth came to check in uh, at Fort Lewis, Washington. And he says, you know, so Mukiyama says to me, he says, so Hackworth walks in and I go, did you know who he was? He said, everybody knew who Hackworth was, Mr. Infantry, that which I to this day, I think that is the ultimate nickname of all nicknames. If your nickname is Mr. Infantry. (laughs) But and then he just went on to say that everything that everything that I thought about Hackworth was hundred percent, right. He was just an incredible leader. His guys loved him. He stood up for his guys. He fought hard. He's brave beyond, you know, brave beyond anything. Um, and just, just an incredible leader that everybody loved. So that, that was very nice to hear, but yes, that book had a huge influence on me and it, it, I think it did a good job of keeping my mind open because you, you, it's, 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 it's something we have to watch out for in the military of the hierarchy and the rigid structure and the disciplines that's are imposed upon you. It can start to close your mind. And, and for me, it was always very important to, to keep an open mind and to question why we're doing this. And is this the best way that something should be done and not just say, Hey, this is what I'm being told to do. So I'm going to go do it. And so I think Hackworth was very instrumental in, in, in balancing me out because I was definitely like hardcore. Hey, I love the SEAL teams. The SEAL teams is my life. But if somebody says something just because they're senior to you, or just because they've been here longer, that doesn't necessarily mean they're right. And this doesn't mean I was a contrarian because I wasn't, but I would at least have the thought in my head of maybe this isn't hundred percent right. And maybe there's another way to do it. And I should always keep an open mind to that. But, uh, but yeah, the, when they approached me, they asked me to write a blurb for the back of the book. And I said, uh, can I write an entire forward? And they were like, yeah, if you want to. And, and it, it happened, they have a, a, a division of that, of that book sale, of that publishing company that's called, I think it's called Archived Books or something like this. And they just try and resurrect old books. And this is a rare book that had been resurrected through no effort of their own. And they started to pull the thread on why this book got resurrected and why it was, you know, the number one Vietnam biography, number one Korean war biography. And they figured out that was because some random guy was talking about it a bunch on his podcast. And that random guy was me. They figured it out. Very cool. It is awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you how that, uh, how that came about. Cause that's a, uh, it's, it's 
so cool that you got to, to do that. And it's a, it's not just a couple paragraphs. It's a long forward. I encourage everybody to read this book, uh, and read that forward from, from Jocko. Um, and one thing that stood out to me about the, the book and about when you talk about him is for the soldiers, same thing you said about Admiral McGuire. Yep. You know, for the guys, for the team guys, how is this going to make their lives better? How is it going to make us a more effective, efficient fighting force downrange? You know, why are we doing this? Asking those those questions, and for the soldiers, which which is uh, part of, I guess, a ironic slash dichotomy, perhaps that uh, that that's what led him to come forward and actually talk about what was not working in Vietnam, which eventually led to him being drummed out of the military. The title of the book about face and led to this and led to really his legacy. Um, so it's, it's very interesting that he got to pass those lessons along um, because of that. So it's, it's, an, it's interesting how that all how it comes about, how it all comes full full circle. And there's something very cool in here also in the dedication. Um, so he, he, this is how he writes. He says, to all the doughboys, the ground pounders, the grunts, the American inf- infantrymen, past, present, and especially future. To them, this book is dedicated. That's pretty cool. That's famous. Yep. Man. And that's what you're doing too with with your with your books right here, the kids ones uh, most especially is laying that that foundation for this next generation of leaders. Um, so hopefully you don't have to learn the same lessons that uh, that we did in blood. Um, and uh, and you, you took a lot from from Hackworth also Bruiser instead of Bravo. I mean, awesome. Uh, the discipline side of the house, uh, of course. Uh, snipers using snipers, something that uh, the regular military wasn't too keen on, but that that Hackworth really recognized the, the value of. Uh, and then the training side of the house. And uh, and all this stuff continues to influence you today. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you just summed it up, like all those things. I named my task unit, task unit Bruiser. Why did I do that? Because Hackworth na- renamed his units when he would take over. And that I d- ripped that off 100% from Hackworth, the sniper thing. Look, we always had snipers in the SEAL teams, but on that deployment to Ramadi, I, I thought to myself, hey, Hackworth, you know, he said that these things just were kind of a game changer. And we started employing snipers just as aggressively as we possibly could and had a huge impact on the battlefield. Yeah, the training, knowing and understanding that training is the most important thing we can do for these young, for the for the next generation. You know, that's what brought me out to our desert warfare and and had you guys running down man drills over and over again. And you're you're one of those lucky guys, man. I meet guys today and they'll be like, yeah, I went through the, I went through your, you know, I, I got in in 2009. I went through land warfare with you. I went through Mount with you. And there's a few guys that went through twice. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty awesome, man. The lucky few. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when you walked in the room, because I think we did Mount first. I think in that platoon. So we were at Fort Knox at the uh, uh, urban warfare training facility up there. So I think in that platoon, usually for whatever reason, all my platoons was always land warfare first, but this time, for whatever reason, it, uh, it was the one that wasn't. And so we got to do Mount first and then go to uh, to land warfare. So I had an introduction in uh, in the urban warfare venue and then got to go out to, to Nyland and do the desert warfare out there. And then for the next one, it was flipped again. So got to do the land warfare with you, with you twice, which was, which was amazing. Um, but, uh, so when you start, so you're out at land warfare and now you start thinking about transition and getting out of the seal teams. And did you just, was that a slow process to realize that it's time to, time to move on? Or was it Hey, after Ramadi, you get back, look around, once again, take that breath, look around, make a call, realize, Hey, I'm going to pass along these lessons as long as I can at trade it. And then I'm moving on. Like, did you know that back then? At what point did you know that you weren't going to go and be a commanding officer and be an admiral one day? And how did that, how did you make that decision? 
Um, I don't know when I specifically figured that out, but um, it was definitely the hardest decision I've ever made. It wasn't like one day I woke up and said, I'm going to get out. It was something I was in my gut and wrenching my gut for months, for literally months. Uh, but, you know, I, the, the bottom line is I, I had a family. I had four kids. My, my kids barely knew me. Um, when I went, when I went on my first deployment to Iraq, my son couldn't even crawl. When I got back, he could walk. Uh, when I got back from my next deployment, he could swim. And I didn't like, I was a frogman. I didn't teach my own son how to swim. The same thing was happening with my daughters. And I was just sort of this random dude that showed up at the house occasionally. And I realized, you know, for me, that my priorities were not, my priorities was the SEAL teams. That's was always my priority. Like if, if it was, Hey, you know, go to the birthday party for your daughter or go to the platoon monster. I was going to platoon monster that that's just the way it was. That's the way I thought things needed to be. And they kind of do need to be that way. And you, there's no, you know, my guys in my platoon, my guys in my task unit, they're counting on me to be ready to make the right decisions at the right time. And if I make bad decisions, they don't come home. And, and by the way, I might not come home either. So really to take care of your family, you have to put your job first. And that's what I did. I did it for 20 years. And at one point I just said, you know, I, this isn't the right thing to do to my family. I, I'm not, I haven't had anything balanced uh, with my family. So I, I need to be a better husband, a better dad. And, and then on top of that, uh, the career at that point, you know, I, I was probably looking at another seven years before I would be the CEO of a SEAL team. So what would I do for those seven years? Well, I would do a disassociated tour. I'd do a deployment with, you know, sitting in a jock somewhere. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't really what I thought I wanted to do at that time. And, um, the other thing, there's a gamble because then you're, you become a commanding officer. You, there might be no war going on. We're talking seven years from now. Uh, there might, we might just be sitting around. And so ultimately I just, I just had to look at the situation I was in and, and put my family first. And, and that's what made me decide to, to retire. And guys, there's guys that do 30 years. There's guys that do 40 years. I got friends that are approaching 40 years in the teams right now. And like hand salute to those guys. God bless them. It's amazing. And, and I'm so thankful that those guys stick it out when guys like me didn't. Um, but they sit, they sit, stay in there. They keep that continuity. They, they pass on the word. They keep the traditions alive. They, they hold the line. So I'm very thankful that I got friends that are doing 30 and 40 years in the SEAL teams. It's amazing. Yeah, Matt, uh, Matt H, because uh, he's still in, so I'll just say H, but uh, who's my uh, senior enlisted advisor in that troop commander tour, and uh, he's getting ready to get out. He's good friends with Jason Gardner, of course, who uh, who works for for uh, Echelon Front and has uh, has been on your podcast and is an awesome guy. So, and that's I think thirty years, maybe even a tad bit over thirty years for for him. And these guys that that put in that time, especially back in the day when you didn't have a physical training thing or all you did was lift as hard as you could and ran as fast as you could in soft sand for as long as you could, maybe down to Imperial Beach, have drink, whatever. Like we did not put a lot of thought into the longevity of our troops back in the 80s and 90s. And these guys are, uh, they're showing some of that, that, that wear and tear. But I think also you can get almost a little too 
comfortable with going to physical training, kind of like those people that show up at Buds who have been Olympic athletes or have been in uh, professional sports where if they're, they're like a Lamborghini, where they get that, oh, some of the rattle, little rattle over here, got to go see, got to have somebody rub it out. Well, guess what? No one's going to massage that thing out of you and tell you how great you are. And you'll be right back in, you know, yep. the exact opposite is going to happen. So there's a, there's a balance there, I think for, for sure. And, uh, and you might, same thing with me, it's very, very similar in that, that pendulum, I looked at it as the pendulum and people talk about a pendulum quite a bit, but it has to be on the side of the team. That's what you owe the guys that, uh, you are taking down range. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the mission. That's what you owe the team, the country by default. Um, and it has to be that way. And for me, being able to articulate that to my wife, I think that's kind of why we're still together is that we talked about that. Like, hey, it's over here. It's not always going to be over here, but for now it has to be um, because these guys are counting on me. And that's why when I'm home, that's why I'm reading all these books and I'm reading all these things to make myself a better operator. That's why I'm still training on my own time or going on the weekends when we're home. Where am I going? I'm going up to do a three-day pistol course somewhere with uh, with Larry Vickers or Pat McNamara or Kyle Lamb or whoever who happens to be passing through to make myself a little little bit better. Um, and but now that pendulum can come back a little bit. <laughs> Still building the business. I mean, you got to keep that in perspective as well. So I, I have to constantly tell myself that, hey, the pendulum is supposed to be on the on the family side right now. So it's something that's uh, I think is always a struggle for for some of us that dive dive right into everything that we that we do. Um, and you're probably not going to remember this. So right before you got out, uh, we were at a change of command. I think it was or it was a retirement on the buds grinder, and uh, you walked by and we talked for a few minutes. And I asked you what you were going to do and you played your cards very close. And in my head, I don't even know if you knew what you're going to do yet, but in my head, I was like, I know what this guy's going to do because I knew how talented you were at passing these lessons on. And I'm like, okay, he's not going to go work for somebody. He's not going to law school. He's not going to medical school. He's not going to go into finance and work for somebody and work his way up. Some, no, he's going to go do something on his own. And in my head, I'm like, he's going to pass these, these lessons on and, uh, and, and transition them over to the private sector. Um, and I, so I was thinking that in my head back then before you, we, while you're still in uniform. Um, and so when did you start thinking about what you were going to do after you make this decision to get out? Um, when did you start thinking about what that next chapter in life was going to be? Yeah. So about six months before I actually retired. So it was about a year out when I went and told the Admiral, um, that I was going to retire. And and then, then I told everyone else in the chain of command. Um, but th then after that, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I really wasn't thinking about it. So I, I had a gym in San Diego, I had a mixed martial arts gym, trained jujitsu, and it was going great. And I figured, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach jujitsu, train jujitsu, surf, hang out with my kids. And, uh, you know, that's that, that's that, that's what I'm going to do. And it, Seemed like a pretty good plan. I love doing jujitsu. I love surfing. I love hanging out with my family. So this is a great way to ride off into the sunset. About six months prior to me retiring, uh, a guy that I knew that was the CEO of a big company said, hey, I want you to come and talk to my executives about leadership. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I didn't even think anything of it. I was like, yeah, he's a friend of mine. Cool. So I went up and he was up LA based and I went up and talked to his executive team. And I think he thought I was going to say, you know, you need to get out there, get after it. Eh. But instead, I talked about cover move, simple, prioritize, execute, decentralized command, taking extreme ownership, being default aggressive. I started, I, I basically gave them a declassified version of the brief that I would ended up giving all the teams as they were getting ready to start trade at ProDev or our, sorry, uh, ULT. 
And so when I got done, he had a look on his face of like, oh, and even during the queue, as soon as people started asking me questions, I was like, oh, this stuff is a hundred percent applicable to the civilian sector. And I got done answering questions and I walked back to the CEO and he says, I want you to do this for every division I have in my company. And I was like, well, I'm getting ready to retire. And he's like, I'll pay you. And I said, okay, well, how much? And <laughs> he offered me money and I was like, okay. So I started then talking to these other divisions and then I retired. And at one of those divisional meetings across the country, the CEO of the parent company was there. So I did a, I did, did, did this leadership talk and I got done and the CEO of the parent company came up to me and said, Hey, I want you to come and talk to all my CEOs. And he owned like 45 or 50 companies at that time. So I went to this CEO summit. And by the time I got done with the CEO summit, a bunch of those CEOs came up. I want you to come and talk to my company. I want you to come and talk to my company. I want you to come and talk to my company. And all of a sudden I had like a job and then Leif got out and I was like, Hey bro, I need some fire support over here. Do you want to come and you know start doing this? So Leif comes and we, I, I had too many, too much to do. And so Leif starts picking up and doing, doing it as well. And then of course we start getting asked, Hey, do you have this stuff written down anywhere? Can you got something we can hand out to the people that can't make it to the meeting? And so we were like, well, yeah, we can write this stuff down. And that, that ended up becoming extreme ownership. Yeah. And that, and, uh, this thing for me, I mean, I don't know who doesn't know. Um, but I get the New York times list thing every week. My publisher sends it to me and I, I really have no reason to go beyond the first two fiction non over here, but I always go and I scroll down to that business section there in the bottom, right. Uh, on these things I get sent weekly. This is always on there. This has been on the New York times list for who knows how, how long. And then, uh, I was thinking about it right before this. And I went over and looked on Amazon. It's like, Number one, number one, number one in those three little categories under there. So um, this thing is, I mean, you guys did a, a, an amazing job with it, but what was it? Was, did you have a little bit of a struggle when it came time to like, hey, we need a deliverable. We have these lessons. We're talking about them in these, these venues. Um, did you struggle with writing them down at all, making it a book because of the, uh, uh, I don't know, the climate at the time at the, in the SEAL teams? And how did you, how did you work, work through that? And also, was it therapeutic? to, uh, to write all these things down and pass these lessons on that you and Leif write about in extreme ownership. Yeah. So the first part, you know, overcoming the quiet professional, um, idea of like, Hey, my whole life in the SEAL teams, you didn't talk about it. Um, I didn't have, you, you know, you didn't put a sticker on your car. You didn't do any of that stuff. That was just the way it was. You didn't say anything. That's the quiet professional. That's the way we're supposed to be. And so there's no way to write a book about your experiences and not on some level violate that protocol. It, 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 you can't do it. You can't do it. It doesn't work. And so you, I had to come to grips with the fact that, okay, the, these are important lessons that need to be learned. These are, these are things that are helping people. We're helping people with them every day that we're putting out this word. We need to get it to, out to more people. And we just need to do it in a way that, and I think this is the key thing that I think really pisses off people inside the SEAL community, if you try and portray yourself as something that you were not when you were in the SEAL teams. So if you try and portray yourself as the ultimate badass, if you try and portray yourself as the most awesome SEAL ever, the, the, the people in the community are going to get pissed. And, and, and that's why, I mean, it was just, how do we write this thing 
and make sure we are humble and we're not trying to say that we're better than we were because we made all kinds of mistakes. And that's why a lot of the book is our mistakes, what we messed up. I mean, the opening chapter of Extreme Ownership is a fratricide that took place, a blue on blue that I was in charge of. And there's nothing worse that I can think of that can happen in combat than having a fratricide. And that's the opening of the book. So we tried to just stay as, as humble as we could and write it from a perspective of, of, hey, look, we're not saying that we're great. We're saying that we were lucky enough to learn some good lessons that could help you as well. And that's what we tried to do. And, you know, of course, there's still there's still seals that it's like that's just a violation. And that's just how it is. I, I was very thankful that most of the guys would be were like, hey, dude, this is a good book. And, and what I think really happened was along this time, there was a lot of books coming out, a lot of SEAL books coming out, a lot of not just necessarily books, but just a lot of uh, publicity. And all of a sudden, people were concerned about how SEALs appeared from the outside. And, and people, my, my friends would say, thank you for doing a good representation of the teams. And yeah. I was like, well, thank you for not thinking I'm a total piece of shit because I wrote a book. Yeah. Admiral McRaven said the same thing at the end of your podcast. I mean, he thanked you for, for being uh, such a good representation of what a SEAL can be both in uniform and out of uniform as well. So that was, that was pretty cool for him to, to, to say that. That was awesome. Yeah. Super, super humbling. And, 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 you know, like I, I only am where I am because of the SEAL teams, you know, that's, that's the SEAL teams gave me everything. They, 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 I was raised in the SEAL team. That's just what I was and what I am. So I never want to do anything that makes the SEAL teams look bad ever. You know, they, they mean too much to me and, and it's a great community. And look, do we have flaws? Of course we have flaws. Do we screw things up? Yes, we do. I did. You did. We, we, we make mistakes. The community makes mistakes. We, but we also have a reputation and we also have a part of what we are and part of who we are is that when something goes wrong, we, we fix the problem. And so look, we, we have problems and we work as hard as we can to get them straightened out. And that's something we can never stop doing. Yeah. And before we go back to the therapeutic question, um, that circle that you had in the SEAL teams, like obviously you influenced me, you influenced an entire generation of combat leaders in the SEAL teams. And those, those, uh, those lessons are still, still out there being, uh, being passed, passed down. Um, and, uh, and now in this book, it's not just war stories. It's not just how you apply those to business. There's a lot of personal stuff in here. It applies to your personal life as well. I think that sometimes gets, gets missed um, when people are talking about business and, and, and combat military leadership and all that stuff. There's a lot of personal accountability that you talk about in on your podcast, that you talk about on social media sometimes, in interviews, that sort of a thing. But uh, this isn't just for business leaders uh, or people that are in the military and want to learn lessons that, that you and Leif took from, from Ramadi. Um, you can take these, these things and apply them to your personal life and be much better for it. I think we'd be a better country if everybody's just going to, if you're going to read a few things, if you were just to read these things only, and I don't, I obviously recommend people read a lot. I do monthly reading lists and all that. But if you were just to read these and internalize these concepts and take accountability and responsibility for your own life and your own actions, we would be you wouldn't have a better life. We'd have a much better country. We have a much better world. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So that, that's why I think, I think the real value in here is what you can take and internalize for personally, that then you start influencing 
your circle. And what is that? Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your, your one kid. Maybe it's your two kids. Maybe it's their friends. Maybe it's your circle at work that's five people. Maybe it's a hundred, whatever that might be. And everybody is getting better moving forward. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's fantastic in that respect. But, um, when you were writing it, was it, uh, was it therapeutic? Because writing mine, even though they're fiction, very therapeutic, especially that first one for me to write. Uh, and it continues to be that way, even though they're fiction, but was it therapeutic in any way to write? I think, I think it is. Um, I, I think writing is good therapy. And, and this is advice that I give when, if you, if you lose somebody and, you know, I've been unfortunate enough to have lost a lot of friends like you. And one of the things that I've also had the honor of doing is giving a bunch of eulogies for my friends. And I, I, I realize that when you write a eulogy, it's, that is very therapeutic and it's really hard. It's freaking heartbreaking. It's soul crushing, but you're getting those, you're capturing what your thoughts and feelings are. And it allows you to kind of take a step back and, and process them a little bit better. And so I think it's very important to whatever, whatever you're going, whatever you've gone through in the past, you, I think it's a really good way to address it is to write about it. And yeah, so I think in these books, all, all my books, being able to write about things I've been through, things I've seen, it, it helps you understand them better. It helps you process them. So yeah, I think therapeutic is, the, is a good word. Uh, the only thing I, that makes me pause a little bit on the word therapeutic is it sounds like almost, oh, if you do this, you're going to immediately feel better. But I think it's more of a long-term, um, just a way of life of, of, of thinking about these things and putting them on paper so you can detach from them and see them from a different perspective. So yes, therapeutic, but in a very strategic way. Got it. No, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And then you guys do the dichotomy of leadership. And this is right here. I printed it out because I still, still have it, still have laws of combat. This is the, the an original, an OG right here, print out from you from back in the day. But uh, I was going to read a couple of them right now. You go through them all. You go through some of them in extreme ownership, go deeper in the dichotomy of leadership book. But, uh, but I love these because once again, they're not just for military. They're not just for business. They're for life. And some of these are confident, not cocky, courageous, not foolhardy competitive, but a gracious loser, attentive to details, but not obsessed by them, strong, but also have endurance, leader and follower, humble, not passive, aggressive, not overbearing. And then we just talked about this, quiet, not silent, calm, not robotic, logical, not devoid of emotions, uh, closer to troopers, but not so close that one is more important than the others. And then this was one I thought about quite a bit in the teams, uh, nothing to prove, but everything to prove. And I thought about that probably daily after you pass that along to me, because I think it was something that I, you, you instinctively know, but you don't have put words to it. Um, and that, that's a great way to put it. Nothing to prove, but everything to prove, uh, infield debate enlisted, have the experience, love that, uh, resign your commission or get one but not working together <laughs> equals failure. And I think you said that a couple of times uh, to different troops and platoons going through that, uh, that are having debates out there in the middle of land warfare. Um, and this is a, this is one is too, this is so valuable for, for the guys and will continue to be valuable for them going forward. Law of armed conflict. Don't do what you think is right. Do what is legal. I mean, that, that right there distills it down. All those briefs that you get from the Jags and, and uh, everything right before you, when your mind's on something else, so you got to go to sign something or whatever else is you're out the door. Do what is legal. I think that one right there, everyone needs to take that to heart that's going, going down range. Um, 
and anything you can do, be made public, do it right, pick your battles, open mind, humility. I mean, they're, they're so fantastic. Um, but there's this last one here. This is, this one's pretty sweet. Article 99. And, uh, you say any, well, well, article 99 says, but you, uh, instilled it in us. Any member of the armed forces who in the presence of the enemy runs away, surrenders, casts away his arms, quits his place of duty, or, and this is in caps, fails to do his utmost to encounter, engage, capture, or destroy enemy troops shall be punished by death. Yeah. Article 99, UCMJ. I wrote it on the wall in, uh, in Basra on that deployment with Matt H that we did uh, for my troop commander tour. But uh, yeah, I mean, those lessons right there, uh, just writing those out and passing those along to, to the next generation and then now making them a part of people's lives by passing them along through, through these books. But when did the dichotomy of leadership come to you? When did you realize, hey, there's this dichotomy out there that people need to think about, you need to internalize, you need to, um, you, know, you need to verbalize, you need to articulate? When did that, when did that come to you? There was this dichotomy out there. I, I was at land warfare and watching a platoon go through. And, you know, I was always saying, hey, look, you got to be aggressive. You got to make things happen. That's got to be your default mode. And like this one platoon, a couple leaders in the platoon just went hyper aggressive and ended up just, you know, get, getting a bunch of people killed. This is just in training, getting a bunch of people shot with paintball. And it was just a big disaster. And I thought to myself, well, I can't be mad at them because I was telling them that they needed to be aggressive. And, and then I said, hey, listen, there is such a thing as being too aggressive. That's what you guys just did. And then I, then I immediately thought to myself, and this is what, you know, what's interesting is you were reading that list, which is an awesome. I actually want you to send that, uh, well. take a picture of that to me and send it to me. But th this is weird. And I talk about this in leadership strategy and tactics. I was always paying attention to leadership. Part of the reason was because I wasn't really that great at any of the just normal stuff, even as a little kid. Like I wasn't the best athlete, but I could get, I could figure out how to win by maneuver. And then when I got in the SEAL teams, I wasn't the best shot. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest, but I could figure out what to do during an assault. If like things were going sideways, I was good at that part. And the reason I was good is because I would take a step back and detach. So it was like, for me, I, I had all this context in my head about leadership. So as soon as I saw this platoon that was too aggressive, I was like, hey, they were too aggressive. And I told them, I said, hey, I can't be mad at you. I told you to be aggressive, but you can't be too aggressive. And as soon as I got done talking to them, I thought you can, be, you can take any of these things that I talk about and you can go too far with them. And there's got to be a balance and everything. And then it was the next Jotsi class that I went to talk to Lave's class. I, I went through the dichotomy of leadership and explained it to him. Hey, all these things have to be balanced. And then the reason we wrote the book is the title of the first book, Extreme Ownership. A lot of people thought, yeah, just need to be extreme. And, and that's not what we were trying to say. You need to take extreme ownership, but this doesn't mean be extreme. It means actually the opposite. You want to be balanced. And so many of the questions that we would have to answer would be because people were out of balance in the dichotomy of leadership. So we ended up taking the last chapter of extreme ownership and turning it into the dichotomy of leadership so that what people would understand the critical element of leadership is to be balanced. Yep. No, it's uh, when I got the junior officer training course, uh, Leif's, and it was a couple of years after Leif had left already and his briefs were still in there. And I had all your stuff that you'd given me. I had the, my experience and I got to add all this and I got to give those junior officers. And so for people listening or watching the junior officer training course is something that uh, we, we started to do finally 
uh, is give a little bit of leadership training in the SEAL teams. And it comes between buds. So between your six months of just proving that you uh, are tough enough to be there, that you are comfortable in the water and that you are safe with demo and uh, firearms, then the officers come out, their class goes on to SEAL qual or to uh, uh, STT, so SEAL tactical training. Um, and they go to a junior officer training course, and then they'll jump into the next class to go through that more advanced block of training. But I would pass them exactly what I read right here. I'd pass them that. I'd pass them Jocko's Laws of Combat. But not only would I just pass them out, we'd talk about them. They were classes. Um, so once again, you're not even there. And your experience, Leif's experience, once again, through me, influencing an entire generation of, uh, of new frogmen. Um, but uh, let's talk about Final Spin. I mean, and that's why also you have to read the dichotomy of leadership and extreme ownership. Uh, you have to read them in conjunction with one another. So highly recommend that. Uh, final spin. So, man, so your first foray into, into fiction. And like I said, don't listen to Jocko's podcast on it till after you read it. And it comes out early November. Is that November 7th? Is that right? Somewhere around November 9th. There? November 9th. This thing is out. You can order it right now and do so. Uh, but don't read the Publisher Weekly review and don't listen to the podcast till after you order this and, and read it. Um, but, uh, and I hadn't, like I said, so I opened this thing to read it and there's a character in here, Artie with special needs. And as soon as I read that in the first chapter, I'm like, oh man, because as you know, we have a middle child with severe special needs. And, uh, that's our, our mission in life is making sure that he is taken care of for a lifetime of full-time care. So that's our, my wife and my mission after the military, that's, that's our mission. So I read this and I'm like, oh man, this is going to be a lot more emotional than, uh, than I thought when I, when I cracked this thing. And that is true. It, it certainly was, it was, a, it's a very emotional, emotional read. Um, but before we get into that, what inspired you to write this in particular? Like you could have chosen I, anything in the fiction realm and then you is, did this. Yeah. This is the one that bubbled to the surface. You know, in my head, I have hundreds, if not thousands of stories that I want to tell. And this is the one that was knocking hardest on the door, wanting to come out. You know, I, but I had this conversation with my, my literary agent and this was a couple of years ago, you know, she went to, uh, I think she went to Yale or Harvard and she majored in history and English literature. And now she's a, she's a, you know, a, a, a writing agent. And one time I said to her, I said, Hey, what, you know, why don't, why don't you write books? And she said, I look at a blank screen on the computer and I have nothing to write. And I said, I look at a blank screen on the computer and I have hundreds of things that are fighting to figure out which one's going to get to get, get put on the page. And, uh, this one, this one is the one that, that won that fight and got out the door. And it's something that I think was really rooted in how I grew up and the, a bunch of experiences that I had as a kid and the way the world looked to me when I was younger and the way it still looks to me now that I'm older and just some, some lessons and some experiences from life that I've had that this just seemed to be a story that, I, that was just, it was just coming out of my, it was just coming out of my head. I just couldn't, I, it was just there. And what's great about this is that you don't overdevelop these characters. We all know people, we all know uh, an Artie, we all know a Johnny, we all know a goat, we all know a Jessica, we all know the 
Gerald Lungstrom guy. Like, you know, these characters, you don't need to do the whole background. And I, I found that that fascinating. And it's, uh, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, even before reading this in developing my characters and developing situations and, de- and describing scenes uh, and letting the reader do a lot of that because you already know off- what an office looks like. You don't need to describe every detail of it in my novels because everybody's been in an office before and they're all going to have a little bit of different idea of what that is. And that's fine. Um, but for you, there's a lot of personal, uh, there's a lot of you in here. Um, and what already is someone that you worked with at a Wendy's uh, back in the day. Of course, I didn't know this so I was reading it, when I was reading it, I only knew it after when I listened to your, your podcast. Um, but you worked with someone who had some, some special needs and a woman named Jean, right? And, uh, so, and it's, it's episode 301 of the podcast. So after you read the book, listen to, listen to 301 and it'll make it a, uh, it's already a full reading experience, but then you get to kind of go behind the curtain and find out exactly what, uh, what inspired all this. Um, but, uh, we can talk a little about the characters. I don't want to talk about the two things that the Publishers Weekly review talks about, but um, so you're working at a Wendy's and there's this, a person there who, I mean, it was impactful to you. I mean, it's obviously stayed with you all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a woman, she was probably 55 years old. Her name was Jean and she had some kind of mental impairment. Um, she was, you know, she, she was fully functional, but she had, she had some kind of mental impairment and she ran the salad bar when Wendy's used to have a salad bar and she was very like almost obsessed with making sure that the salad bar was, everything was clean and the dressings were filled up and the salad was fresh. And it, it kind of seemed in a way like she was being abused because she was working there, you know, getting paid whatever, $6 and 30 cents an hour. And she would work incredibly long hours and it seemed like she was kind of getting abused, like the luckiest Wendy's manager in the country happened to get this person that's obsessed with running the perfect salad bar for $6 and 30 cents an hour. But at the same time, she was like happy. She, she was happier, definitely happier than anybody else. Definitely happier than me. And cause I'm flipping burgers and hating life. And that's pretty much everyone that's there is in the same way. Even the people that, even the manager, the day manager, the night manager, no one was happy. They were all miserable. And here's this woman who is happy. And, and I was always nice to her. You know, I was always just, I would try and talk to her. I try and talk to her. I try to figure out like what was going on in her life. And she would never really talk about anything about the salad bar, about the pineapples, about the croutons. The croutons were fresh. The croutons were crunchy. Like that's what she would talk to me about, but I would just always be nice to her. And, 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 you know, sadly, um, some of the other people were not nice to her. You know, they would, they would kind of talk down to her and make fun of her. And she didn't really know that that was happening. Uh, but yeah, it definitely stuck with me. And that the fact that, you know, for me, I always saw in life, there was like this underlying sadness around me. And, and when I saw people, when I looked at people, when I talked to people, I always felt like, like life isn't really going to work out the way you want it to. And, and, and that's a, that's a, that's a, a pretty rough thing to, to look at the world, to, to look at the world. And I don't know why, I don't know why I noticed that, but it's just something that I kind of felt that when I looked around at people, I always thought, life didn't quite go the way you wanted it to, or life is not going to go quite the way you want it to. And you're going to end up 
you know, like everybody, everybody's going to end up, your friends are going to die. You're going to die. Your family's going to die. The people you love are going to die. You're going to have a crappy job. It's going to be a gut check. Like there's all these negative things. And it seemed like that was sort of what life was. And then there was Gene, who is, who is actually pretty happy. And so I always remembered that. And that's where, that's where that character came from. And I didn't, I made this guy already obsessed with laundry uh, because I don't like doing laundry. And I just thought, what's the, what, if there's something that you, the worst, the, the, the most horrible thing that I have to deal with in my life, you know, on a daily basis, like, oh, I got to do laundry. I thought, what would be the worst thing to be obsessed with? A guy that's obsessed with doing laundry, he loves doing something that I, that I hate doing. And, and the other funny thing is, you know, we all get obsessed with things, you know, we, we're obsessed with jujitsu, we're obsessed with archery, we're obsessed with climbing, we, we, and there's groups of people that are obsessed with those things. And that's their life. And it's just kind of funny to have somebody that's obsessed with doing something that most people find completely mundane and boring. Yeah, it's amazing how chat that, uh, that, that experience ends up in the pages of this but in final spin. I mean, it works on a couple of different levels, which people will realize once they, once they read it. But when you talked about him being happy, I mean, for me, once again, super emotional because, uh, years and years ago when I was still in the SEAL teams, uh, a guy, a hunting buddy in, in San Diego, Ron province, uh, he, he, t- he, we were talking about our son and, uh, and he's, he said, he's going to be happy. Like, and uh, that, and at the time I was kind of like, ah, but it's true. I mean, and that it's something that I think about every single day is that, uh, that my son is, is happy. And uh, for that, I am so thankful. Um, so when I read that here and here and heard you talk about it, I'm like, oh, geez, but, uh, just, just super emotional. But, uh, then you have another guy, you have Johnny and, uh, there's, and, and it's not in here, but I heard you talk about it, how you dedicate the, the book to the person that, uh, that really influenced that character and obviously impacted you a lot, uh, Jeff Lang. That saying mm-hmm. that right, um, and as a friend of yours growing up, who took a took a different path, but uh, but you dedicate the book, and he had an impact on you. What's uh what was his story? So Jeff Lang and I were best friends from I want to say first or second grade through about seventh grade, fifth grade. We were actually in the same class together, and we were completely out of control. Um, he was hilarious. He was a great athlete. He was super smart. And, but he was a troublemaker for sure. I was a troublemaker too. We'd get in trouble. He would always get in a little bit more trouble than me. He had a little bit less of a, of a restraint on his personality than I did. And so he would always, you know, when the teacher would say, I'm going to kick you, I'm going to send you two to the principal's office. I would kind of settle down. He would get sent to the principal's office. And as we grew up, you know, I started, I started going down the path of sort of, I was listening to heavy metal and then hardcore music. And then I was going down that path and he started listening to, uh, I guess, hippie music and that kind of path. And our paths kind of diverged, although we always were friends. Like we were such good friends as kids that it didn't matter that he was uh, smoking dope and doing drugs. And I was not doing any of that. We still were always friends. We would still see each other at school and hang out, talk. And then, but, but we ended up on very different paths. And so I ended up joining the Navy and he was, you know, had, I think he had at this point dropped out of school and he was just going down a bad path in life. And 
uh, when I when I joined the Navy, kind of the last time that I remember talking to him, he said something along the lines of like, you know, I, I heard you're going to the Navy. And we were, when we were kids, before he, be, you know, got went down that path, we'd run around and play Army freaking 10 hours a day, you know, shooting each other with BB guns and building forts and all the stuff that boys do. And now you fast forward, whatever it was, 10 years, 12 years, and I'm going to join the military and he's not going to, and he's headed in a completely different path. And he said to me something along the lines of, I wish I, Hey, I wish I could go with you. And I was kind of said back to him, you can, you know, do it, do it. And he kind of had a look on his face of no, I can't. And, and it was not a positive look. It was kind of a sad look because he was just too down the path of, of that, you know, bad, that bad path of drugs and alcohol. And so I ended up, you know, I left for boot camp and started buds and all that. And, and I, it was somewhere around, I, I want to say maybe sometime shortly after hell week. Uh, I, my, I talked to my mom or I maybe called my mom to say I made it through hell week or something like that, or called my mom and dad. And my mom told me that Jeff Lang had killed himself. And, you know, it just, it always stuck with me that, and what really stuck with me was the fact that he was a lot better than me in, in, in just about everything. He was smarter than me. He was funnier than me. He was a better athlete than me. He was just a really, a really good human being. And he had a good heart and he just made some bad decisions along the way. And, and that's what happens. You know, that's what ha has ha happened to my friend, Jeff Lang. I've seen it happen to a lot of my friends along the way. And, and so I got lucky, you know, I got lucky when I joined the military, all that angst and energy and, and anger that I had as a kid, I, I, I focused it on one thing and that was, I wanted to be a good steal. And, and that, what a beautiful opportunity and how lucky is that, that I got to take all the things that I thought were cool and apply them in my life. And if that wouldn't happen, I don't know what would happen to me. So yes, that that's where this character of Johnny, he's not necessarily Jeff Lang. He's more an amalgamation of, of, of there's definitely, he's, he's Jeff Lang strong, but goat is also Jeff Lang. Strong. Yeah. They're both, they both have some Jeff Lang in them, but they also have just a bunch of other kids. You know, I have, I have other friends that, you know, I had a friend that like, got drunk and drowned in a freaking, in a little Creek, you know, and he's 25 years old or something like this. And you just think, man, great humans with all this opportunity and it, and it, they're just making some, some bad decisions and they end up in a bad spot. And, and so I've known a lot of people like that in my life. And I, I definitely Jeff Lang, it's, it breaks my heart, you know, to think that, 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 that he, what he could have done with his life and and how it ended up being so tragic it's it's a it's a sad story for sure yeah and it but what connects people to this book and why i think it's going to resonate with so many people is because people know whether it's firsthand whether it's secondhand they know people like this that have had these experiences uh, most of them will, will know people in their own lives that uh that they'll recognize as a johnny as a joe especially as a jessica and I mean, you don't overdevelop it. I keep going back to that because uh, once again, everyone already knows these characters. Um, we all know Jessica. Um, we all, maybe in the SEAL teams, we know a few more, two, <laughs> a few Jessicas, but uh, Gerald also, Longstrom. I mean, what everybody's gonna, gonna relate to that because in life you have to work and you're, always, you're, you're gonna have somebody out there that's a Gerald Longstrom-ish yep. type person. Uh, and, uh, it, was he just fun to write? 
everyone was fun to write. And, yeah. and yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. Cause even though it's obviously it's a pretty tragic story in the end, but man, there's, I had so much fun, like uh, just reading, reading the audiobook. you know, I would be, I would have to redo stuff. Cause I'd be laughing, you know, too hard at my own jokes at the, at the, at the things that the guys are saying to each other. There's just, the whole thing was really fun to write. And, and yeah, Lundstrom, we, we all knew it, a Jerry nickname that they call him the weasel. Everybody had the weasel in their life. You know, if you had a minimum wage job at some point, you worked for the weasel hundred <laughs> percent. And he thought that he was, you know, the coolest guy in the world because he was the manager of the night shift and he was an asshole about it. And, and so, yeah, we've all worked for those people and it was definitely fun to write. Yeah, no, it, it's great. I mean, the themes we talked about, obsession, uh, the consumerism part of it, the underlying sadness to the to the whole thing um, that comes from from life in general. I mean, you're going to get dealt cards in your life, and now it's up to you to play those cards the best you possibly can. That part's on you. Um, so that, and not being able to undo the past, that's the other thing that stood out to me in this, is Johnny thinking, hey, I'm going to make this better. We're going to figure this out. Like, uh, and he, Anyway, I don't want to talk too much about it, but not being able to undo the past so, so then what do you do? Uh, and you don't really talk about this in the book, but the lesson to me anyway, and hopefully to people reading is like, oh, you take that foundation, then you build upon it. You can build upon those failures and keep moving forward. Wiser for it. Um, but I kept thinking like, I, I'm reading, I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm like no, don't. Ah. So, uh, so what would you say is the, is the main lesson of final spin that you want people to, when they close that, they turn that final page, what do you want them to, to walk away from? with uh, you know you know part of the part of the huge part of it is the sacrifices that people make in their lives and and you know there's a huge sacrifice that takes place in the book and you know the people are doing that every day and it, it was interesting for me you know i i've spent so much time with so many people that have served in the military obviously served in the military for 20 years and there's people that make sacrifices every day whether they're a a, a waitress single mom waitress working three jobs, whether they're, you know, in this particular case, you got a guy like Johnny, that's trying to support his brother, trying to support his alcoholic mom. And, and that's what his life is. That's where he ended up. And he doesn't do a great job of it, but he's trying, he's trying hard. And I, and I think just to, to, you ever had those dreams? Have you ever had a dream where you did something wrong in the dream and it's like a major mistake in your life. And then you wake up and you realize that it's a dream. I, I have a dream sometimes where I commit some horrible crime and I leave the crime scene. And when I leave the crime, crime scene, I get back to my house and I realize I left my wallet at the crime scene. And like, I am 100% gonna get busted for whatever heinous crime I committed. And I wake up and I'm just so just horrified and I'm so depressed and sad and just the worst feeling. And it lasts for like five seconds. And then I go, oh, wait a second. Where's my wallet? Oh, my wallet's on my bed. Oh, that was just a dream. And I'm so happy. And it's like a, it's like a new lease on life, right? It's like a new lease on life. And I hope that this book, when people read it, they, they realize that, you know, we all have a new lease on life, you know, and, and if, as long as you're not, if you're, if you're still alive, you can still, you can still make things happen. And, and, and I would also say that the most important um, thing that I've found in my life is doing things to help other people 
is the is the way that you win. It's the most gratifying thing. It's the way it's the way it's the way that you can get satisfaction in your life, not by not by the consumerism stuff, not by buying a bigger house or a bigger car or whatever, not by, you know, getting moving up in your corporate hierarchy, you know, becoming the best night manager and being the most uh uh being the the sternest boss. None of those things are are really going to move you in the right direction. And but if you if you can help other people, if you can make some sacrifices for others, I think that's where where happiness comes from and I think that's that's portrayed in the book. Yeah, I wrote that down here. Happiness, putting yourself, uh, putting others before yourself, um, as a as a takeaway. And you're doing that every day. I mean, you got you have the books out there, the kids' book, uh, Mikey the Dragon. I mean, it, you're doing so much to help other people. Uh, you must be a very happy guy these days, Jocko. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm certainly glad that you've decided to, to pass these things on. And I want to be cognizant of your time, but it also um, I do want to ask you about a few a few things. Um, more current events type. So mm-hmm. you did this presidential address-ish, a few minutes long. Uh, and I know you were probably getting texts from everybody and people asking on social media, what do you think of Afghanistan? What do you think of Afghanistan? And you didn't reply for a little bit, but people want to know what your thoughts are on this. And then, bam, you did it and essentially drop the mic, walk away type of a thing. Uh, and I'm sure people def- definitely go out and check that out. You can find it anywhere. Just put, type it into the, the search, search bar. Um, but what would it take, do you think, to get you involved in uh, in politics from not just being a supporter, but to actually to step into the ring? Like, I'm not asking if you would do it or not. What would it take to for you to do that? Yeah, it would take really major catastrophic events happening and a complete lack of leadership. You know, I, I really I don't I don't want to get into p- politics. Um, it's just not something I, I want to do. Yeah. Uh, but I also love America. And if things just get to a point where I don't, I can't sit by and watch it anymore, I would, I would, I would do something about it. But politics is just a nasty, ugly world. And yeah, I just don't, I just don't know. Yeah. It would, it would have to get pretty bad. It would have to get pretty bad. Yeah, I think that's the easiest question I get asked about is about politics. And my answer is it's an easy answer. No, um, <laughs> it just, it's, it's not a real, I'm very comfortable in the fighting part and I'm very comfortable in the, the not fighting part and the learning and all that, but that middle part where people, it, it just, it's not a place where I think I would, uh, what excel. It's just not my, my forte. There needs to be all, all in fight or the other side. And yeah, I just I think I might I might do good as a benevolent dictator. <laughs> There's something about that about you know it it, it, it it having a king because it, when you have a king or someone like that or a dictator, guess what? You can overthrow that that person. Um, and uh, anyway, and it's a whole nother yeah, another thing. I, I do think I do. I am hopeful. I have a positive attitude that you know they they say when someone has problems in their personal life, right? They got to reach rock bottom before they kind of turn around and and fix their life. I mean, I think we're getting pretty close to a rock bottom scenario with our political environment, the way, you know, there's looking at the the people that are in power right now, their behavior, their attitudes, uh, their lack of leadership. I think we're really close to the, to, to that rock bottom politically as a country. And I think people, the, the actual humans, the people of America are, are like just so fed up 
And I think there's going to be some, I don't know what it is, but I think something will happen that will put us in a better spot, sort of a, a semi-radical change, whether it's some kind of a third party, whether, I don't know what, but something that's something that's somewhat different that, that, that puts, that puts us on a different track. This track that we're on right now is, is awful to watch. I mean, it's just absolutely awful to watch. It's sickening that people could act this way and behave this way and, and have these type of attitudes and they're supposed to be in charge of, of, of America. So I think the, I think the, uh, the people of America aren't really going to put up with that much more. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking to watch. And I think what's part of what's happened is that they've found there is power in division, uh, for them. And it's just been exacerbated by the rise, obviously, of social media. And then we become aware of these algorithms that are working on us to click a button to see advertisements or whatever it is. Well, guess what? Political realm, they're recognizing that too, maybe a little slower than some of the tech giants, but uh, they're recognizing that power and division. And then they get to exacerbate these problems for their own personal gain uh, or the gain of you know whatever constituency they, uh, they And represent. not to mention... And not to mention, there's other nation states that want nothing more than to watch America fail and fall. And so they do their best to incite that division as well. And you know, I just had this conversation with someone the other day. If there's a platoon and there's two clicks in the platoon and they don't get along, how's that platoon do compared to a platoon where everyone gets along? And, and they don't get along perfectly, but they can at least say, hey, you know what, Jack, your call on this, will, I, I'll support you. If they can get to there where they just put their ego aside and just let's move forward, that platoon that works together utterly destroys the platoon that is fighting with each other. And that is so obvious. And yet we run around in this country arguing on social media, taking divisive stances. You know, if if Jack believes this thing over here, then I categorize his whole personality and I hate him and I won't talk to him. Or if Jack disagrees with me on this point, then I hate Jack. Instead of saying, oh, well, why do you think that, Jack? Maybe I could learn something from you. I don't understand that maybe as well as you do. And instead of listening to each other, it's just, hey, shut up. I'm not talking to you. I hate you. That's that's where we're at. And people don't realize how bad that is for a SEAL platoon and how bad that is for a country. And there are agents in the world that are out trying to sow these seeds of divisiveness inside of our country. And this is not me being, uh, you know, imagining this, these, this is, these, this is what has happened factually. So if we don't start paying attention to that, we're going to end up in a, in a tough spot, but I do think we are starting to pay more attention. And I think America, I think Americans are starting to get just fed up with it and we're ready to work together and move forward. Well, I'm glad you're hopeful because it's very hard for me to remain hopeful. I try to uh, have my public face be hopeful. But, uh, you know, privately when I sit down with my wife at the end of the day and we're talking on the couch, sharing a glass of wine or whatever, it's, uh, it's hard to remain hopeful. Um, when you see the direction we're going, how far we've gone down this path already. Um, and then my last book, the devil's hand was all about putting myself in the enemy's shoes and what lessons they learned from watching us on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. What have they learned, uh, from watching our response to COVID? What have they learned from the civil unrest in our, in our cities? What have they learned and how have they applied those lessons to their future battle plans? And as I was going through this research and putting myself in the enemy's shoes for about a year and a half, as I was writing this thing, I felt horrible because my takeaway was, man, I wouldn't do too much if I was the enemy right now. I might just sit back and watch instigate a little bit over here with a few bots or whatever they have going on. That's about it. We're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside. 
And uh, that part is heartbreaking. Yes, it is heartbreaking. That one luxury I have, Jack, that allows me to be have a little bit more of a positive attitude is I I, I travel the country, and if, even if I'm not traveling, I work with all these companies mm-hmm. all over the country in every industry that you can imagine, and all these companies, they're all working together. They're all want to want to grow their business. They all want to figure out how to be better leaders. So there's so many people in America right now. If you if you if you think America is Twitter, it's a freaking disaster. It's a failed state. (laughs) If you think that America is America and you get to travel and, you know, I go, like I said, I work with countries or companies all over this country in the middle of the country on the coast, tech companies, finance companies, energy companies, healthcare companies, and they're all thinking, Hey, what can we do better? How can we get better? So that I think is what is maintaining me, give, allowing me to maintain a little bit of a, a positive attitude even though Twitter looks like a failed state. (laughs) (laughs) I love that Twitter looks like a failed state. I might put that in the novel. I'll put it in the acknowledgements for sure. Uh, That's fantastic. Um, But I'm going to tell that to my wife tonight uh, uh, when we, when we finally sit down at the, at the end of the day that, that you have hope here, because uh, yeah, if you just look at Twitter or the comments, maybe in a YouTube video, it's uh, exactly that. It's uh, it's not inspiring. uh, If you're thinking about future generations and what they're going to have to contend with. Um, And when you're looking at, at, at Ramadi in particular, or Iraq as a whole, or now Afghanistan, we've seen how after 20 years, how we essentially rushed to failure at the end uh, when we had, we didn't even have to go back to the Soviets. We didn't have to go back to three British incursions in the 1800s and early 1900s. We didn't have to go back to Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great. We had 20 years of our own experience to learn and adapt and prepare. And yet it ended up the way it did. Um, When you conceptualize that or think about it, take a breath, or talk to people about it, especially parents who ask you, hey, was it was my son or daughter's sacrifice worth it when they're looking at what's happened in Afghanistan, what's, what, what, how Iraq looks right now? Um, how do you conceptualize that personally? And then what do you, what do you tell them? What's your message to them? The, the thing is, when, when, when we as a nation go out and, and try and have an impact on the world, that that's, that's going to be a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. And, you know, you've probably heard me say before that if you're going to go to war, you have to have the will and the, the will that you have to have when you go to war is you have to have the will to kill. And when I say kill, I don't just mean the enemy, because when you go to war, you are going to kill innocent people. That's just what's going to happen. So you have to have the will to kill. And you also have to have the will to die because if you go to war, Americans are going to die. So I think we need to weigh that very heavily. I don't think we do a very good job of weighing that. I think our ego allows us to say, well, you know, we have smart bombs, so we won't kill any civilians and we'll be the good guys and nothing will ever go wrong. And because we have uh, body armor and MRAPs, we will, we won't take casualties. And, and those two things are just wrong. So when we go to war, we're, we're going to take casualties and anybody that thinks anything different is, is just being naive. And when we go to war, we're going to kill innocent people. And anybody that thinks anything different is just being naive. But as far as these efforts, you know, in Afghanistan, and you and I both have very close friends that have served over there. We both lost friends over there in Afghanistan. And, and look, it's, it's 20 years. There's a bunch of positive things that came out of that 20 years. Number one, we didn't suffer any other terrorist attacks in this country that it, why is that? Because there was pressure on the enemy over there. 
that that's a really positive thing. And you mentioned Jason Gardner earlier. Uh, Jason Gardner was given a brief the other day, right as this Afghanistan thing was unfolding. And he, he put up a picture of Jason Gardner in Afghanistan in his uniform with his weapon. And he's surrounded by a bunch of kids. And in particular, he's kind of interacting with a young Afghan girl. And he says, you know, with this girl, in the 20 years that we were there, this girl got an education. She has an opportunity to under, she had an opportunity to understand the world and there's massive sacrifices that were made for this, but that, that is at the end of the day, this is a positive thing that happened. Now, Iraq, it's the same thing. You know, we, we, we were able to go there. And again, I always like to talk from a tactical perspective. When we were in Ramadi, there were people in Ramadi the, the, the civilian populace in Ramadi who was being tortured, raped, butchered, murdered by the insurgents, they were so happy and joyous that we were there to give them their city back and give them the opportunity to live a, a normal life and a stable life. And so there's these massive sacrifices that were made. And in both those cases, you could look at those cases and say, yeah, but in the end, what difference did it make? And if that's, if that's what our, if that's what your attitude in, in life is like you're a nihilist, right? Like don't, why do anything? Why make any effort in the world? We, we, as Americans, we should do our best to try and help out other people in the world. But here's the, you know, and here's where uh, the negative part comes in. The negative part comes into this is we need to understand what we're doing and we need to put leadership in position that understands how to lead. And right now, you know, the leadership that we have doesn't understand what's happening. They, 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 you know, I, that's a bold statement, right? That's a harsh statement to say that the leadership of the country doesn't understand what's happening. But when you look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan, everybody, everybody can I shouldn't say everybody, but almost everyone in the world saw what was going to happen and what is going to happen. But like, this is so obvious. And yet we had leaders that seemed to be completely oblivious to everything that unfolded and were surprised by it and are continuing to be surprised by it. So we need to do a better job as Americans of electing people that understand the world, understand the globe and understand leadership. And we failed to do that. This is, this is, you know, this is my fault. This is your fault. This is our fault. We've allowed this to happen. We've put leaders in positions that should not be in those positions and, and we need to do a better job. And if, like I said, I think we're getting to a point where we're getting to a rock bottom where people are looking around saying, how is this happening? How do we let that happen? We let that happen. Look, something I say all the time, all your problems are leadership problems. So when I go work with a company, every problem that they have inside that company is a leadership problem. And guess what? Leadership is the solution. Leadership is the solution. And right now we need better leadership. We need real leadership in this country. And if we don't get it, we're going to continue down this bad path where we, we look around and our position in the world is waning. And there might be some people that say, well, you know, you were too big and too strong anyways. We were big, we were strong. And, and you know what? When you're the biggest, strongest person in the schoolyard, you can prevent people from being bullied. You can prevent kids from getting their 
their Cheetos stolen from them. And, and that's, that's what we should be. Doesn't mean we're the bully. It means we're, we have the capability to stop other people from bullying. And, and that's the way we should be. That's the way America should be. And I think that's the way we need to get back to. Yeah. No, I think it's about understanding the nature of the conflict. We're talking about committing U.S. forces, understanding the nature of the conflict in which you're about to commit America's sons and daughters. Um, and we failed to do that throughout the last 20 years, I think, as a as a whole. And when you say everybody looked at Afghanistan, it's not really uh, an overstatement. Um, Karl von Klauschwitz said that the uh, one of the most important attributes of a leader is common sense. And so that's why the person who has never served in the military, never read a book on leadership, never read a book on tactics or strategy, can look at Afghanistan and say, hey, what? Because uh, they have common sense. And uh, it's just so, so hard to watch. And for me, internalizing it, I look at it as the way I deal with it anyway, is that, hey, we need to take these lessons and pass them on to the next generation. There are so many lessons from the last 20 years that we seem to just be sweeping under under the rug, but we need to take those, whether they're military lessons, whether they're uh, strategic political lessons, and we need to learn from them and pass them on to the next generation and turn them turn that experience into wisdom. And oftentimes we don't do that. We have an experience, okay, fine, we're moving forward and we don't learn from it, but it's taking that experience and turning it into wisdom for the next generation so we all get stronger. So that's kind of how I how I think about it because it's, yeah, otherwise it's it's too heartbreaking to contemplate. But uh, but you have a lot going on. I mean, it's it's awesome. Echelon Front, you guys have Origin, Pete Roberts out there. You guys are crushing it, bringing American manufacturing back to this country. Um, I love what you you guys are doing there. Jocko, go. You're in all these Wawa's up and down the coast. I mean, it's amazing to see. It's so inspiring to see. So at the same time, you have all that going on. Well, I guess I should ask you, um, how did the uh, relationship with uh, with Pete Roberts and Origin, how did that all come about? What inspired you to, to go down that path? Because once again, like you're taking a risk here, moving into fiction. What did you do with American manufacturing and taking these old factories that are rusted? And, and I mean, it's amazing. You can go online. You can see these videos of these guys putting these new uh, uh, manufacturing facilities together and resurrecting it. It's, it's awesome to, to see. Um, but what was that? What was the, what was the inspiration behind that? What was the opportunity that presented itself that you seized? As, as I started my podcast and people were listening to the podcast and people would start training jujitsu because I talk about jujitsu all the time. And, um, People would ask me what kind of jujitsu gi to get, and I would tell them to get an origin gi because I knew that there was this random human up in Maine, up in New England, where I'm from, that was making American-made gis, the only one in the country, the only one in the world. And so, and I had reached out to him a couple of times and I never heard back from him. And eventually I was on a Facebook live and I was doing a Q&A and somebody asked me what kind of jujitsu gi to get. And I said, get an origin gi. And I said, and by the way, if anyone can get in touch with this guy, Pete Roberts, please tell him I want to talk to him. Well, someone on that FaceTime or on, on that Facebook live reached out through various business contacts and got in touch with Pete. And we, we set up a meeting. We had a call. We had a four hour Zoom call or it was a Skype call at the time. And when I got off the phone, my wife said, it sounded like you were talking to yourself in there. And what we realized was, you know, he had this, this manufacturing capability and I, but he was in Farmington, Maine, where there's 17 people. <laughs> and I was, you know, and I had a platform where I was talking to millions of people every week. And so, I, and I wanted to make American made products. And so really all we had to do is a perfect storm. We shook hands and we started making stuff and it just been, it has been incredible. We now, we now have multiple factories. We're making boots, we're making jeans, we're making geese. 
We just we just uh, acquired another factory in North Carolina. Um, that's really helped our capability. So, and we're looking at other factories in other areas, literally as I speak right now. So, and and all this is, you know, for me. Look, I, I served my time in the military. The, the American military is incredible, power, incredibly powerful force, but America gets its strength from the economy. And when I was growing up, I saw, we, you know, Pete and myself, when we were growing up, we watched those factories empty out. We watched those machines get sold overseas. And it was sickening to see people lose their jobs and see those factories abandoned. And, and, and it, it was really, this sounds uh, really cliche, but it's, it was corporate greed. It was corporate greed when someone says, you know what, I can make this pair of jeans in America for $17. I can make them in China for $15 and I'll, I'll make $2 extra pair of jeans. And, and that's what they did. And, and so many manufacturers did that. And it got to a point too, when people started raising their voices about it, they said, well, there's no way it can be done anymore. We can't do it. We don't have the knowledge. And so Pete, Pete should get, I don't know what, I don't know what award, but for bringing that knowledge back, hiring people that were, you know, 60 years old that hadn't worked in 20 years because there was no jobs for them and having, bringing them in to help, to help teach people how to sew, to help teach people how to run the looms. And now we have that knowledge. We, we talked about passing on knowledge. We have that knowledge passed on. We had a guy that was a, a an expert on looms and weaving and he, he recently died. His name was Lenny, freaking outstanding American, patriotic American. And before he died, he, he passed on all that knowledge to 21 and 22 and 23-year-old people that can now do that job. So we're totally passionate about this. Um, it's, it's a huge impact on the communities. We got a, a few hundred employees right now. That number is going to be growing. And we're going we're gonna to prove to the world prove to these big corporations that America can and will manufacture in America again. And if you, if you want to bet against me, go for it. I'll take <laughs> your money. It's so awesome. Yeah. Go online, check out on YouTube, the video with the looms when you guys are talking about that. I mean, obviously the video is great and all that, the presentation content and all that stuff, but the story is, is so inspiring. It's so cool. Everybody should go check that out. Uh, I think we got it into the terminal list. So Chris Pratt and terminal list. We have an origin gi there in his garage with his belt. His daughter's belts are there and all that stuff to help tell that story. I got a Josh Hall surfboard in there. I think he drove it nice. up. I was like, we need a surfboard in this scene. And and uh, he drove it on up. So we got that in a, in a scene. I got Sorenex stuff in the gym, in the garage. So knock-ons in there, SIGs in there, Winkler knives, origin gis. So it's really cool to be able to incorporate uh good people, great companies, uh, and stuff that, that I actually use my characters use into that, uh, that story. And hopefully, you know, uh, widen people's aperture or it can introduce people to some of these different companies or stories behind the companies. So it's, uh, it's super cool. And then, uh, also you got, you got into archery recently. You've been on a few hunts. Uh, you're putting elk on the table. We just had moose here last night. Um, and, uh, you got into that recently. So you have so much going on out there that is, that is inspiring to people, no matter what they're doing. They don't have to be a jujitsu guy. They don't have to be a military guy. They don't have to be a business leader. There's so many things you're doing to, to inspire people, which is what I, I love about what you're doing in this next chapter. And then you have these musters. And so the musters, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or, or, uh, what originally gave you that idea was that, Hey, we, we have, we go to these different groups and I'm talking to 50 people, hundred people, um, from a, 
a company. Um, let's do something where we can open it up, have an open enrollment type of a thing and bring anybody in that, uh, that wants to come. So you bring the cost down for different companies that can send a few people. Um, so how have these musters been, been going? I know you had to cancel a couple during COVID craziness, but they're back up and running. I think you're about to do one in Vegas. Yeah. Um, I'm in I'm in a hotel in Vegas right now. We're doing one this week, but yeah, they've been awesome. Yeah, and the the original deal was as we got more and more demand for Echelon Front to come and work with companies, we unfortunately priced out of the market a lot of small businesses, and you know we were just working with you know huge companies, and I felt I felt guilty about that because I you know we want to help people that have, you know, a little construction company with 17 people or a landscaping business or a manufacturer that's only got, you know, 23 people at it. And they couldn't afford the, the big corporate price tag. And we just decided, hey, let's do something where a bunch of people can come from a bunch of different small businesses. And that way they kind of collectively can get this information. And that's exactly what we did. We we did the first one, I want to say 2016. Um, we rolled the dice. I think we pl- we started talking about it in August. And the thing event took place in October. And I I said, Hey, listen, if we do it and it goes well, you know, that'll be great. If not, we'll get 30 or 40 people. It'll be the best experience of their life. And we'll lose, (laughs) you know, a hundred grand. And that's that, but we sold out the first one and we sold out all of them. So yeah, it's very cool. It's a great opportunity to come, come, come together, teach these leadership lessons that, that you and I were talking about earlier and how they apply to people in their business on the battlefield. And like you said, in their lives. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to not only, uh, get to put out that information, but then also receive information and meet people. And there's, you know, six or 700 people that are all have the same goals that want to get better. So they're great, great events. And they're, they're a lot of fun to do. Yeah. It's my favorite part about signing books or even being on social media for me, it's being able to thank people. Um, and it's getting harder to do as the big, bigger things get, but that's my favorite part of it is to be able to just say, thank you. You couldn't have done that in 1985 if you were an author, um, you know, unless you were at a in-person book signing, but now you can with these different platforms. That's, that's my, my favorite part of, of doing something either in person or, or even online engaging with people. But, uh, so your, your podcast also, you have these incredible guests, you're collecting histories from these guys. Um, are there a couple that have changed your perspective on life or leadership um, that you've then incorporated into what you pass along to either businesses or individuals? This is the Sophie's choice question, Jack, the Sophie's choice question of like, okay, which guest was the best? No, and which, no. And it's like, even, even the way, even the way you phrased it, which I'll give you credit was a nice way of phrasing it. But man, it is so hard. You stack up the people that I've had on the podcast and the things that they talk about. And I, I the whole thing has it changed me? Yeah, 100%. Um, have I learned? I can't even fathom the amount. And and even the guests and also the books that I read, you know, when there's no guests, but I'm just reading an old book, you know, I read the whole book and outline the whole book and highlight the whole book. So people are always like, oh, I learned a lot from your podcast. And I'm always thinking, I learned, I'm lucky enough to learn even more. And even the guests that come on, you know, you meet them and you interact with them. So, man, it's just been, it's been so, it's been so powerful. And, and, and most of the things, quite frankly, they just reinforce the things that I know and, and come at it from a different angle. And, you know, I, one that, one that, since you asked me, one that comes to mind is I had Captain Charlie Plum on who was in the Hanoi Hilton for six years after he was shot down in, in Vietnam. 
And one of the rules that they had was if your cellmate is annoying you for whatever reason, that's your fault. You're the, so if Jack, if you and I, if you're my cellmate cellmate and you're snoring and that's annoying me, that's my fault. If you're picking your nose and that annoys me, that's my fault. If you're uh, picking the toe jam out of your toenails and that's annoying me, that's my fault. And, and that's like such a high level of extreme ownership. <laughs> and if you think about the truth and that's how you have to be, you're in a cell, you and I are in a cell for six months and they would rotate, you know, every six months, every nine months, maybe every year, but I'm going to live with you for a year. And if I'm going to allow these things to bother me, that's actually on me. And imagine how much better our relationship is. If I just say, you know what, Jack's snoring at night and I got to fashion some earplugs because I can't let that annoy me. That's on me. It's just, it's just one of those things that sticks out to me, but yeah, the, 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 the information that I've gotten, the, the, the blessing I've had of being able to talk to all these incredible people, uh, you know, Rose Schindler, who is in Auschwitz, who, who was sneaking in and out of the death line, like in line to go into the gas chambers and somehow sneaks out at the last second and does that over and over again. You can't, you can't even imagine the, the, the strength of character. Another one is uh, William Reader, who's captured, shot down twice in Vietnam. The second time he's shot down, he's captured. He's in a two-foot-tall bamboo cage. He's trying to sleep. His legs are shackled, and he can't get to sleep because the rats in the cage are gnawing at the wounds on his legs. I mean... Like, don't complain about anything in life. Don't, you, we have nothing to complain about, nothing. And he endured that. You know, the, interestingly, the Hanoi Hilton, that, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a joke of a name, but for some guys that had trekked through, the, trekked through the jungle to get there, it was like the Hilton. It was a luxury to be there rather than being on the jungle transport trails that they got walked up to, which took, I think in his particular case, I want to say it took him like seven months. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Dakota Meyer and then getting to talk to pe with people like Jordan Peterson, it's just it's 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 crazy, man. I can't I can't. I, that's why whenever somebody asks me these types of questions, I throw up the Sophie's Choice defense. I can't I really just can't grade and stack and rank the lessons learned and the people that have been on in the books that I've read on the podcast. It's just it's just too much. It's 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 all too good. Yeah, I know for the, the listener, obviously, or the person that watches they're getting so much from it. So for you to have that, even a deeper experience in person and having read the whole book, if they have, have a book, get the, get to talk to them before and after the podcast. I mean, incredible. And they're so emotional. So many of them are so emotional. Um, that's why I said earlier about the family members hearing this stuff for the first time, um, through your podcast. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and now you have Jocko underground. So now you have something else. That's uh, as if you need more to do, but uh, it seems that's a great way because once you get so big on these different platforms, it must become hard to do what maybe you did in the beginning, which was maybe engage uh, individually with people. And it seems like Jocko Underground is a way to do that. Um, and because people are now investing in it and uh, which makes them take ownership of a bit of it. And you're doing this Jocko Underground thing. So, um, and it's still fairly new, right? Has that been a year or so? Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably about a year old and there was a bunch of reasons for that. And the number one reason was 
I don't control the platforms, right? I don't control the podcasting platforms. I don't control YouTube. I have no control over them. And there's some things that they've done, uh, some things with me, but like, for instance, they'll inject some podcast platforms will inject advertisements into my podcast, which is, which, which is weird, right? Like here I am talking to Rose Schindler about being an Auschwitz and all of a sudden you're hearing a commercial for a damn whatever, um, whatever, whatever item. And that's, that, that's, that's, that's not okay. And, and then, you know, that we had, I had some podcasts that got uh, flagged. I did one on the Armenian genocide that got flagged and had the information or whatever put under it. And which again, what if they just decided we're not just going to flag it. We're going to, we're going to ban it. We're going to get rid of it. And to not have any control that to not have freedom of speech, basically, essentially is what I'm saying is to not have freedom of speech to me is to me, for me to not have some kind of a contingency plan in case those platforms are taken away. And again, they, they've been fine so far for the most part. Um, you know, we've, we haven't had any issues. I haven't, I have had friends that have had, have had issues. So I just talked to echo one day and said, Hey man, we need a contingency plan. You know, there's, we could say something or do something, or somebody could decide that who a person we've had on the podcast shouldn't be on there. And we just need some kind of contingency plan. And so we we made this kind of alternate universe of the underground where people could, yeah, they can pay it's $8 and 18 cents a month. And what that allowed us to do is to build this whole platform out. Now, my goal is to give the stuff away for free. That's my goal. And as long as I can possibly make it free, it's going to, the, the Jocko podcast is going to be free and that's, that's how we're going to do it. Um, but to not have a contingency plan in case things go sideways, you know, there's another thing that like there's rumors about certain big podcasting platforms going to pay only. And so now all of a sudden it's like, oh, now you're going to pay this company who's just going to take what we created, put advertisements all throughout it. And I just didn't like it. So so we created that. And then in order to, in order to like give some, give the people that want to get in the game and be on the platform in order to, in order to give them some reward, we just started recording another little podcast where we talk about kind of adjacent topics and then they can send in Q and A's. And we've been through hundreds of answering questions, which I used to do more of that on my, on the Jocko podcast, but at a certain point, the questions are, there's, there's just two, I can't, I can't yeah. see them all. And so it just became, you know, I can't really make this happen. So yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, Definitely check out Jocko Underground. I love it. Uh, crushing it there. Uh, great for high school, college kids also, you know, get in at that ground level. Uh, and now people can, now you can have probably kids that read one of these, one of your, uh, the, the way of the warrior kid books in like, I don't know, fifth grade or something like that. Now they're in high school, maybe, uh, or something like that. And now they're moving on to the next book. Uh, they're listening to the podcast. Now they're in Jocko underground. Now they're training jujitsu. I think that's, I mean, you're making a stronger country, but when you get a chance to talk to these, let's say a high school kid or that, uh, is thinking about the military or just graduating, uh, or the college kid that doesn't know what he's going to do next or what she's going to do next. Um, what do you tell them? I mean, you have so much that you can just say, Hey, read these books. But when you get asked that by somebody who's eager and young, what do you, what do you pass along? to that, uh, to that kid. This is when they're specifically asking about joining the military. Nope. Just in general, like they're taking that next step in life. And, uh, 
and maybe they're asking you about the military because I'm sure you get that question quite a bit. Um, what do you, what do you pass along? What are you hoping that, uh, let's say, what are you hoping that somebody that knows about you, that's listening to the podcast, that's on the path, they're in high school, they're in college, and now they're going into the world. Uh, yeah. what do you want them to take, take on that during journey with them? Well, what, one, one thing I think is very important. And I wrote about this in leadership strategy and tactics and the, the it's something that I call preemptive ownership. And, and what this means is extreme ownership is really awesome. But it's past tense, right? Oh, I made this mistake. I'm going to take ownership of it. I'm going to fix it. Well, there's there's preemptive ownership, which is which is actually the ideal, which is, hey, if we go on this mission and something goes wrong, it's on me. So I need to set it up in such a way that nothing does go wrong. Or if I'm a, you know, I always like to talk about the commanders of, of ships. If a Navy ship runs aground, that commander is getting fired. So if I know that, then I go through steps. I take preemptive ownership to make sure my people have the training, to make sure that they understand what they're doing, to make sure that the systems are all up and running. So I take preemptive ownership because I can, I can have much more control that way. And that's the same with your life. Like we have so much control over our lives. So if you're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 13, whatever age you are, you have so much, if you take ownership of what's going on in your world, preemptive ownership to say, okay, this is what I want to be doing. Here's how I can get there. This is where I want to be. Here's how I can move to get into that position. Here's who I want to be. And here's what I can do to become that person that I want to be. And I was like, like I said earlier, I was very lucky because I joined the SEAL teams. I joined the Navy and all of a sudden my goal became very clear. And I took all this energy, just, I just wanted to be a good SEAL, Jack. That's what I want. I just want to be a good SEAL. Well, you can pick, pick that out of your life. If you're a young person, you can say, this is what I want to do. And you can start to move in that direction. Look, am I a Pollyannic person that says, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do anything in life. No, there's limitations to what you can do, but I'm going to tell you what you can try and you will become a, the best possible version of you that you can ever be if you try and do something that is that 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 is, that you set your sights on. So I would say take preemptive ownership of your life. Look at where you want to be in the future and start to make moves that will get you in that direction. I think one of the biggest disconnects that kids have is they don't understand how their present day life impacts their future. And I feel very lucky, Jack, because by the time I was looking around saying, I wonder what I'm going to do with my life, I'd been in the SEAL teams for 15 <laughs> years. It was like, I, I was so lucky. I had other friends that at 15 years after high school were saying, you know, I, maybe I should do something besides landscaping. Maybe I should do something besides, you know, painting buildings. Maybe I should do something besides, you know, working at the restaurant. It took them 10 years, 12 years to, to make a move. You and I, well, I, I can at least say I, I was very lucky. I, by the time I looked around, the first time I looked around, I was the admiral's aide. The first time I looked around and said, you know, what I, what I should do with my life? I was the admiral's aide. I've been in for 15 years. And then it was like, okay, well, what should I do? Oh, I guess I kind of do have a career. Oh yeah, I guess this is a career. So you can, you can, you can make those steps. So if you're a young person out there, figure out what you want to do, figure out where you want to be. And you don't have to be perfect. I say this all the time, five-year plan. I don't really have a five-year plan because all kinds of windows of opportunities are going to open up. I don't know what those are, but figure out who you want to be, figure out where you want to be and put a plan together to get you moving in that direction. And if you do that, you'll be, you'll, you'll look up in three years 
and you'll be shocked at the progress that you've made. And it'll be, it'll be awesome. Yep. No, love it. And uh, understanding those capabilities and limitations so that you can then improve. I think that's, uh, people talk about capabilities, but it's also important to know those limitations uh, so that you can then work on them so that when you go into these situations that, uh, that, that you know both of those things, are, I think are very important. And uh, so before I let you go, I want to read, and you've read this before on your podcast and you've talked about it, but I was there at your, your retirement ceremony when you gave your kids your, your, your boonie hat and all that. So it was awesome to see. It was so cool to, to be there for that and to hear you give this speech in person. But uh, you said, as I walk away from the teams today, I assure you that I will never forget. I'll never forget your service and sacrifice. I will never forget you, my fellow SEALs, for getting me here to this day, for leading me, for following me, and for watching my back. I will never forget our fellow soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who have fought and sacrificed so much. I'll never forget those big, tough frogmen and hardcore SEALs that came before me, particularly the ones that raised me in the teams and taught me the true way of the frogman. And finally, I will never forget our fallen brothers, the many SEALs who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom, especially Mark Lee, Mike Mansoor, Ryan Job, SEAL Team 3, Tasking a Bruiser, who lived and fought and died like warriors. Man, that was awesome to hear you say that in person. And, uh, you know, I think about that stuff every day. And I know you end your podcast at the, uh, at the end, thanking everybody who's down there downrange, whether it's, uh, it's, it's military or whether it's law enforcement or first responders that are allowing us to, to do what we're doing in this, uh, this post-military chapter of, uh, of our lives. So um, you can find that whole, I think you talk about the whole thing somewhere online or on the podcast. Um, but I also want to thank you for, uh, for putting me through training twice. Uh, <laughs> my back's still a little sore. Uh, that's all right. I'm, sorry, man. <laughs> I'm working through it. And then, uh, Bam, Mikey and the Dragon. So our littlest guy, we have three kids and uh, you signed this to, to our littlest one who's now 11. But uh, you tell him this, you say, stand up, fight the dragons. Jocko. <laughs> love it, love it. Man, thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, and spending so much time with me. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, people who have read my novels and have read your work uh, know that a lot of what you passed on to me weaves its way into into my novels. I usually put it in italics, and it's usually my protagonist, my main character, thinking, prioritize, and execute, or whatever it might be. But I put those in italics in there, and that's uh, that's all due to uh, to you passing those on and uh, and continuing to pass those on and influence uh, not just a next generation of of combat leaders, but uh, next generation of Americans in general. So uh, thank you so much for for all you've done and continue to do. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. It's it's been awesome to watch everything that you've been doing. Um, you know, you I, in when you were on my podcast talking about this was a vision that you had for for your pretty much your whole life, and to see you out there executing this vision um, comes as no surprise to me. But it doesn't make it any less enjoyable to see you out there and see the show coming out. Uh, it's just awesome. It's gonna be it, it's it's just incredible to see. So thanks for everything you're doing. And, and appreciate the, the good words back in my direction, man. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, take care. Have a great muster. And hopefully I'll see you in person, maybe out on a hunt or at a uh, total archery challenge again one of these days soon. Right on, man. Awesome. All right, man. Hey, take care. Thanks for everything. Today's gear highlight segment is brought to you by 10,000. Now, 10,000 is an athletic apparel company. They make hands down the best training workout shorts that I've ever worn. And I've worn quite a few over my time, both before the military, in the military, and today. I've been wearing their seven inch tactical short, which is these ones right here, and their interval shorts that I'm wearing right now. But uh, these things 
are incredible. Uh, and I've been putting on the pack, heading up into the mountain. I've been running. I've been doing throwing the kettlebells around. And uh, as I continue on to get back in shape here, this is my short of choice. I love it so much that I'm going to get all the other stuff that they have out there as well. You can find them 10,000.cc online and also Instagram 10,000.cc there as well. But I'm going to looking forward to trying out their shirts and all the rest of the stuff they have going on there. And I wanted to read their brand ethos because it's, uh, uh, it's very close to what I think about each and every day. And uh, here it is. It says, at the heart of 10,000 is a stoic dedication to continuous improvement, every day faster, every day stronger, every day better than yesterday. And hashtag better than yesterday is their hashtag on Instagram, which I absolutely love because that's always the goal, to do it better than we did yesterday, uh, to learn from what we did yesterday and do it better going forward, turn those lessons into wisdom. Uh, and that's what I try to do with the kids as well, is pass some of that along to them. We don't believe in overnight success, miracle drugs, cure-alls, quick fixes, or shortcuts. We believe in works in progress. We believe in the value of our failures. We believe in dusting off and getting back up. We believe in grit, tenacity, and grinding. Yes, absolutely love that. Uh, these shorts, I just want to make sure I get this right. Uh, ultralight ripstop fabric, tough as nails waistband, permanent anti-odor treatment, no-bounce pocket, medium compression, anti-chafe liner, side slits, and four-way stretch for maximum range of motion. It, it, yeah. What all that means is that these are awesome shorts. 10,000 makes gear specific to other types of training, from running to Olympic lifting to boxing. You can also find a short for all the ways you train. Pick up the short that is best for your training and then personalize it with custom liner and inseam options. So awesome. Definitely check them out online. Uh, they have free shipping and free returns and a lifetime guarantee. And I'm going to read this call to action because you can get 15% off your purchase if you remember this. So write it down. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code DANGERCLOSE15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Once again, that is DANGERCLOSE15 to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter danger close 15. Awesome. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. Because my guest today was Jocko Willink of Echelon Front, Jocko Podcast, Jocko Underground, all the books. Uh, I figured it would be appropriate to highlight a couple SEAL-owned businesses, guys who have transitioned out, found that next passion in life and gone after it and crushed it. So the first one, Resco watches. So rescoinstruments.com. And so this is my first Resco. I have a few, R-E-S-C-O. So right there. And Rob Smith is a former SEAL who had a passion for watchmaking from an early age. And as he was getting out, he started this company. Resco. And this is my first one right here. Uh, this is the Patriot. And you just might catch a Resco watch on Chris Pratt's wrist in the Terminal List series coming to Amazon in 2022. Uh, if you've read the novels, you'll know that that's what James Reese, the protagonist of my novels, Navy Seal Sniper, that's what he wears. So um, Resco, awesome. And I think I've been fascinated with watches from an early age and not because, uh, they're flashy or they complement uh, something you're wearing or anything like that, but because of what they represent. 
And time is something that once it's gone, we're never getting it back. And we get to choose how we're going to spend that limited time on earth. So no matter how much money you have or what kind of a person you are, that time is limited. That time is the same for all of us, meaning it is limited. So you get to choose. So I think that's why I've been fascinated with watches and uh, Resco right here. Awesome. Rob Smith. Thank you guys so much uh, for such a great product and for being such an inspiration for people that are getting out of the military to find that next passion in life. So very cool. So in a similar vein, bam, half face blades. Andrew Arabito, buddy. Awesome. So right here, I have quite a few, as you can tell. And if you've read the novels, you know that uh, James Reese uses these in the novels. And uh, this one in particular in the terminal list. But uh, I have a few. You can't really walk too far in this office or this house, really, without tripping on one of these. But uh, Andrew makes some amazing stuff. I think they go up every Friday, I want to say. And uh, they sell out, I think, within seconds, certainly within minutes, but I think within seconds. And you can go check out his stuff, half Face Blades. He's spec operator on Instagram as well. And uh, just makes some really cool, unique looking blades. Uh, this one here, I think is the Numo Spike. Is that what you call this one, Beto? So look at that. Bam. Don't take that one through the heart. Pretty sweet. Actually got my publicist at Simon & Schuster, David Brown, Atrium Mystery Bus on Twitter, got him a blade because he was opening book packages in the office with just scissors and I couldn't couldn't have that for, for my publicist. So now he has a sweet half-face blade with which to do his unboxings. And Andrew also makes some, look at that, some folders and uh, just awesome. So very cool. Check them out halffaceblades.com. Uh, I think the drops happen maybe on Instagram. I'm not sure how that all works, but uh, if you want one, you got to be on the ball. So yeah, just a few blades. Uh, another thing that I've been fascinated with since I was a, a little kid, probably because of how primal they are in nature, but uh, half-face blades, Rusco watches, check them out. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find out more about what Jocko has going on at jockopodcast.com. Link to all of his platforms from there. You can also go to echelonfront.com to find out more about his leadership consulting business and about the muster that we discussed on this podcast. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, and you can go to my website, officialjackcar.com to find out more about what I have going on. You can also link to Jack Carr USA for the merch. My latest book, In the Blood, comes out in 2022. So be sure to pre-order that right now. And until the next time, take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original. 
Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot. Like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.